Hello and welcome to the Weekly Stuff Podcast with Jonathan Lack and Sean Chapman. The government may be shut down, but the podcast is not. We are here to talk about stuff. Yes, even should society itself fall, I imagine we will somehow find a way to continue to record the podcast. This week on the show, we're going to talk about a couple little things. We've got a couple little news items. We're going to do a little Doctor Who check-in. We're going to do a check-in on Digimon Story Cyber Sleuth Hacker's Memory, which we have started playing, but we're not reviewing yet, obviously, because it came out Friday. This is Sunday. Yeah. So we'll talk about that. But our main topic today is one that I think we've wanted to do for a while and needed just to like sit down and talk about how we were going to do it. And that is, don't turn off the podcast when you hear what I say. We're going to talk about the Star Wars prequels. Yes. We're not going to talk about the Star Wars prequels like the internet has been talking about the Star Wars prequels for 20 years. No. Um, We are going to be doing, over the next few months, in-depth reviews of episodes one, two, and three, starting today with episode one, The Phantom Menace. Mm-hmm. And the goal of the, I think this came from two things. One, you and I had so much fun talking about The Last Jedi when that came out. Yeah. And it's like, you know, good Star Wars, bad Star Wars, whatever, there's meat to it and it's fun to talk about. Yeah. For pop culture stuff. And also that, you know, the prequels are, while they are both derided by fandom, they are also an omnipresent element in fandom. Yes, yeah, it's in some ways of having just like been fresh off of rewatching the Phantom Menace, it has made me feel like it, like the cultural reaction to it was the harbinger of like the the like pop culture apocalypse we are living through right now. Yes, and you know this is a movie, and these pre- the prequels are movies that are so important to what Star Wars is because for a long time they were fifty percent of it on film, and they are important. To understanding the past of the franchise, the future of the franchise, I think they are important pieces of pop culture work from the 2000s. They are hugely influential films on every conceivable technical level. And this is all take quality out of the equation. Everything I'm saying is just an objective truth. Yeah. And yet, I think they are some of the most critically disengaged with movies ever made in that they are so talked about. And yet so little actual critical engagement is done with them of what are their themes? What are their genuine faults and strengths in the ways we talk about other films, not just lol jar jar? Yeah. You know, what do they have to say? And I think the impetus for this more than anything, and tell me if you agree, is that I think they have things to say about the political moment we are living in that that are profound and interesting and... Living through the time we are living in and going back and watching them is giving me new light on these films that I don't think I ever saw and I don't think has been substantively grappled with in criticism. And that's why I want to have this conversation. Yeah, no, I, I agree with everything you've said. That especially the stuff of that they are such hugely important films in the history of filmmaking. And then also having, like, I've... Like, pending rewatches of the other two. I, I know that I like episode three. I'm very curious to see what my response will be rewatching episode two, because that's the one I traditionally have not liked that much. But having just watched episode one for the first time since I was probably, like, 14, so it's been, a, like, the first time as an adult in a long fucking time, it's a good fucking movie. It's a really good movie. It's a really good fucking movie. Like, yeah. that was the thing of, like, I was expecting to enjoy it, at least on, like, an intellectual level. It's like, that. it's a good fucking movie. Yeah. People are fucking stupid. It's a good fucking movie. It just is. It's This was what I was going to start our conversation with later, but I'll just say my line on this is, if you really look at The Phantom Menace and think that's a bad movie, you haven't seen enough movies. Yeah, right. That's it's, my line yeah, on it. Yeah. 
So we'll we'll go more in depth on yes. that in our full topic, but that's the but, preview. It's but, a good movie. But we want to review this like a movie. We're not going to do the jokes. We're not going to do the memes. We're just we're going to talk about it like we talk about any other movie on this podcast. Yeah. And I it kind of was shocking to me when we sat down and talked about this. And it's like we've never done that with these yeah. films. Yeah, because we had basically kind of done that in a like very broad way a long time ago. In your in like the 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 dorm room. Yeah. In your, when we were freshman college. In, in twenty eleven wasn't even on this version of the podcast. Yeah, that was because that was when the Blu rays came out, right? Yeah. And so we kind of very vaguely talked about the movies, but we have never gone in depth on them at all. Yeah. All right, so that's going to be our main topic, and I hope you guys enjoy it. And we're going to do, you know, the first three over the next couple months. And if we have fun, maybe we'll do the other ones. You know? Sure, why not? Why not? Those I'm are kind easy. of never done watching Star Wars is more or less the story of my life. And then we'll do an episode by episode recap of the Clone Wars. I fully anticipate that I'm going to end up rewatching all the Clone Wars now. Okay. <laughs> like I think that's what you have done to me. Is like I need to pin that into my schedule at some point within the next year. You want to talk some stuff? Let's talk about what's going on. What's the stuff, Jonathan? From one great sci-fi franchise to another one, uh, Doctor Who. Yeah. So you guys know I've been doing my classic Doctor Who run-through, and I just finished season 14, which is the last Philip Hinchcliffe season. Um, Robert Holmes did technically stay around for most of the next season, but last of the, that Hinchcliffe-Holmes dynamic, of course. Yeah. Um, and, of course, the last one there is Talons of Wang Chiang. And I just want to spend, like, five minutes gushing over this era of Doctor Who. Because, Sean, you've been building me up for it for years. Yes. The world's been building me up for it for years. Sometimes that's a recipe for disappointment. It was not for uh, these three years of Doctor Who, which are three of the best years of sci-fi ever told in any medium. Yeah. And the Talons of Wang Chiang might be the best of them. Yeah. And we'll talk about that in a second, but... I'm so happy, Sean, These it's, to have finally gotten through and seen all of this. And I'm so glad I, you know, I want to go back and fill in the gaps I have with the first and second Doctors. But having started at least with the third Doctor and going through, it's so much fun. And I would totally recommend, if you want to get into Classic Who and are intimidated be, by the beginning, because the first and second Doctors, they're shot a little differently. There's so much missing. They're a little harder yeah. to access. There's also a lot of it. Like, yes. it's it's... Basically, half of classic Doctor Who is just the first and second Doctor. Yeah, because it aired like twice weekly, fifty weeks a year or something. Yeah, they, that was that was literally a TV factory. Yeah, um, it's really easy to just start with the third Doctor. Mm-hmm. Like, I'd watch a couple first and second Doctor stories. We can give you recommendations. Yeah, but like, there's you lose very little just starting with John Pertwee. He tumbles out of the TARDIS, and you're, you're you know from the word go, it's just off to the races. Five great seasons with him. Now that I've you know three of the great fourth Doctor seasons. I'm having so much fun. Talons of Wang Chiang. Yeah. That was a full circle moment for me. Because that was one of the first classic Who stories I ever saw when you showed it to me yes. for a really old podcast project. It would be, I guess it would be the fourth one you saw, right? Yeah. Unless mm-hmm. you saw ones outside of my purview back then. No, it would have been the fourth one I saw. And it was one I didn't quite get at the time. And I would say that's not a Doctor Who episode I would watch out of context. Like, just like, if you've never seen classic Who, I wouldn't start with that one. Yeah. Um... Not because there's anything like continuity-wise necessarily. It's just, it's you kind of have to be within the rhythms of the show at that point. But oh my god, that's six of the best episodes of TV I've ever seen. Yeah, like yeah, Robert really Robert one. Holmes, his dialogue. It's and I tweeted about this, especially in the period pieces he does when he has to write for like the voices of different periods in like European history. Yeah, he is a poet. There's no other word for it. Like, the words that come out of Jago and Lightfoot's mouth in Talons of Wayne Chiang, I would... It took me so long to get through these six episodes, because I watched them in two-episode chunks, because I just... I needed to digest each two episodes. Yeah. And it's actually one of the best serials in terms of being episodic. Like, each episode is its own kind of little thing. 
And I would frequently just rewind and just listen to the dialogue and turn on the subtitles and study the, the, the syntax of the sentence because it's absolutely fascinating. It's an amazing story on top of that. Asterisk for that story has uncomfortable racial undertones. Right, yeah, that's something you always have to contend with when you go um, back to something from the 70s. Yes, and, and it is also hearkening to... Victorian literature and like pop fiction. Oh, absolutely. Of like, yeah, the obsession with the Oriental and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, so some of it I actually think is done thematically in that it's not actually an evil Chinese god, it's an alien who is manipulating Chinese people into thinking he's their god. Yeah. And then there, that is mixed with uncomfortable actual racial overtones that, you know, again, British guy is playing the main villain, or one of the main villains, um, Li Xiaocheng, yeah. or whatever his name is, and um, still a great performance. It's just a great performance done in um, yellow face, I guess we would say, yeah. which is problematic. But, you know, doesn't mean it should be erased. Amazing, amazing story. Robert Holmes is an amazing writer. Leela in that story, Sean. Because oh. we haven't talked about Leela on the show yet. So I've seen three Leela stories. Yeah. Leela is a great fucking companion. Yes, yeah, she is. She has one of the best entrances ever. And her, her, so she's in half of that season. All three of her stories are fucking hits. Face of Evil, uh, Robots of Death, yeah. and then Talents of Wayne Chiang. And those are all three stories that I don't think you could have told with Sarah Jane, yeah. the previous companion. I like, agree. you have to have Leela there. They were so just tight at that point. Like, season 14 is just a perfect season of Doctor Who. It's six hits. It's utterly amazing. No weak spot. And, man, I just... And I'm excited to see the rest... There's also that little bit of sadness of like, oh, Philip Hinchcliffe was really good at this. Uh-huh. And you watch him on the DVD bonus features because he's one of the more vocal participants and he's able to speak for Robert Holmes because they were friends and, and Holmes, of course, passed away young during the Sixth Doctor's era. Um, but you get a sense that like, not only was he, I think, creatively very smart and adept for this show, he was just a very talented producer. Mm-hmm. He was very good at getting good work out of other people. Like He talks about on Talents of Wang Chiang that like, Part of it was this was one of those cases where they had a story, it couldn't be done. Robert Holmes, can you write us six episodes in two weeks? And Robert Holmes was super stressed out. So Hinchcliffe found this way to say, like, no, 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 write whatever you want. Just tell us what's in the first three or four episodes so we can start building sets. And then you go off, we won't even talk to you, just write your story. And he was just so good at managing people. Mm-hmm. And that's part of why you just you get a sense that everyone was kind of a happy family for those three years. Um, not that they stopped being under Graham Williams. There were ups and downs, but yeah. like, you know, really turmoil didn't start until uh, a certain John Nathan Turner came along. Yeah. But no, it's it's really interesting. Such a great story. I, I love this whole era. And now I'm asking myself the eternal question, and I want to hear your snap response to this. Uh-huh. Sean, what's the best story of the Hinchcliffe Holmes era? I mean, like, Talons of Wing Shining is the easiest choice out of those. Yeah. Um, fuck. Like, I mean, yeah, there's like Towns of Wang Chiang, Brains of Morbius, Pyramid of Mars. Just a boatload of Robert Holmes. Ark in Space. Um, the Robots of Death is a personal favorite of mine. It's that really one's really good. fucking good. Like, that's, I don't know if I would necessarily say it's the best. I would say that's like the most underestimated story from that era because it's very rarely talked about. It's sandwiched between so many other just like, you know, Leela's first episode, Towns of Wang Chiang, Deadly Assassin. Like, it's, it, there's all these other things yeah. going on that season. But no, it's a masterpiece. Yeah. Yeah, I think I would say I would stay with my safe bet of Talons of Wang Chiang because it is. I am. It feels like a culmination of that era in a lot of ways. Today. I, I agree. I'm torn between that or Genesis of the Daleks. Hmm. I really do think Genesis of the Daleks is one of the most powerful sci-fi stories I've ever seen. Um, but also, like, then I start thinking, like, oh, but Ark in Space, yeah. but Pyramids of Mars, but Brandon Morbius has it. Oh my god, you know, like they're yeah. just. It's it's almost all hits. Like I can point to, I think. 
one or two stories I thought were more down, but never to the degree of bad or even approaching bad. Yeah. Really. You know, yeah. like the weakest is clearly Revenge of the Cybermen, but like that actually the first two episodes are rocky, the last two are great. So yeah. like it's 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 hard to say. It's just a, a great fucking run. And uh I'm so glad I'm doing this. Yeah, I me too. Like I'm happy that 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 I'm not just the classic Doctor Who guy anymore on yes. the podcast. It gets to be both of us get to have this mm-hmm. basis. Because now it's great because now that you're with like the Leela stuff, now you like know how great it can be when you have like a weird companion that's not just a normal Earth person. It's one of the most interesting things because this is an era of the show where from here basically to the end of Tom Baker, he doesn't have any direct connections to Earth. Yeah. He's not working with Unit anymore. Sarah Jane is gone. Oh, Sarah Jane's last episode, by the way. Yeah. Oh, great story, and their last scene, which basically Tom Baker and Elizabeth Slayton just wrote themselves. Uh, Robert Holmes just said, like, you guys know what you need to say, and it's so tear-jerking and beautiful. Um, and I, I just watched that and thought about Elizabeth Slayton being gone and how sad that is, yeah. and, and just taken so, so much too young. But um, I don't know where I was going with this. But yeah, like, like, so he has no more connections to Earth, and it just immediately recolors things. Like, from Deadly Assassin, and Leela's not there yet, but, you know, you, you really foreground the Doctor as an alien in Deadly Assassin, and then go through. It's, it's fascinating. Also, Deadly Assassin, I haven't talked yeah. about. Mm-hmm. Um, it's an amazing story. It's also, I am currently uh, assistant teaching a class at CU Boulder um, in the film studies program that I graduated from, and it's on 60s film. And the movie we started with was The Manchurian Candidate. Oh, yeah. Which is one of the most, like, relevant, prophetic movies of that era. And The Deadly Assassin is heavily influenced by The Manchurian Candidate. It is one of the most politically interesting episodes of Doctor Who. Also, artistically, episode three, where they're in, like, the dream world, The yes, Matrix. The Matrix. Um, that's basically, it looks like a Tarkovsky film. Uh-huh. And acts like a David Lynch film or something, but more violent. And it's insane and amazing. And that last shot where they're just holding Tom Baker's head underwater, which yeah. is basically the reason Philip Pinchcliffe was fired. Yeah, they do sort of just like the cliffhanger for that episode is the doctors being straight up drowned on screen. I can't, like, you couldn't have gotten away with that in an American film at the time. I'm not even kidding. Like, yeah. just, well, I guess by the 70s you could have. I'm thinking Manchurian Candidate times. But, like, it's nuts. It's nuts some of the stuff they got away with in that era. And, yeah, I, uh, Doctor Who's never been the same. Yeah. No, and it's. You know, it's it's got evolved. If you got to go out, Towns of Wang Chiang is the story to go out on. But man, oh man, I, uh, I I'm also at this point where like I can't wait to see all the other Doctor Who I haven't seen. I also can't wait to go back and rewatch all the stuff I just watched. Right? You yeah, know? Yeah, that's like that's the great <laughs> thing about watching classic Doctor Who's. It just it allows you to go back and watch whatever you want to watch whenever you want to watch it. It was just like I want to watch the Deadly Robots or the, the, the Robots of Death. Yeah, or, yeah, yeah. I think both of those are Doctor Who stories. <laughs> Uh, like on one random day, and you just do it. And you're like, this is really fucking good. Yeah, no. And I um, know all the context for it and everything already because I watched it that way once. The Mask of Mandr- Mandragora, Mandragora. Yeah, that's, that's also that season. Oh man, yeah. we start in Renaissance Italy, we end in Victorian London. That's a hell of a season of Doctor Who. Yeah. Anyway, I just wanted to gush about that for a minute. Uh, so so good, Tom Baker, man. Uh, I also the the okay so deadly the the Talents of Wang Chiang. Its DVD is a three disc set. Of course it is. Where disc one is just the show with a commentary and text track, because they always have that. And, of course, everyone's there on the commentary. And then two full discs of bonus features. One, you know, they have a big making of. The making of is framed as Tom Baker and Philip Hinchcliffe meeting on a bridge in England. And, like, talking about... And Tom Baker says, Do you remember our last story, The Talons of Wang Chiang? Oh, 
what good times. And they say, with Bob Holmes, and Louise Jameson, she was lovely, wasn't she? <laughs> it's an amazing, like, they're just talking about this. And it's, the whole thing is framed as, like, Philip, uh, Philip Hinchcliffe going around talking to different members of the crew. Oh, it's great. Louise Jameson also is a wonderful participant on these because she yeah. has such interesting thoughts. Like, she and Tom Baker are really good friends now, and they do Big Finish, and they talk about that. They didn't get along at first, and it's really interesting to hear about that. And it's even mirrored kind of in their relationship on screen where the Doctor... Like, he and Sarah Jane were friends. I don't think he really considers Leela a friend yet. Yeah, like, Leela is this this girl that follows him around that he has to keep from murdering people all the time, which is maybe the best part about her, is that she legitimately is actively trying to kill people like every other episode. And But it is interesting. Like, you know, now every time there's a companion, it's the Doctor's new best friend. I kind of like the, the tension there. Yeah. And it's actually something that I think they... It would be interesting if they did that, you know... We've got Jodie Whittaker having the first real TARDIS crew of modern Doctor Who. There's room, I think, for different kinds of relationships. Like, you could have yeah. one person be the Doctor's best friend. One person be, like, the person who was kidnapped on the TARDIS. You <laughs> yeah. know, who knows? Um, it's going to be interesting. But yeah, no, Doctor Who, I love it. You know that. It's, yeah, it's really fucking good. Yeah, we had a, a housekeeping note. We had our next Class of Doctor Who podcast last yeah. week on Kinda. I was actually re- I, I re-listen to those because I find them interesting because it's actually you kind of guiding the conversation yeah. and I, I like to hear what you have to say. So those are fun ones. Yes, yeah, we're we're a bit ahead. I'm I'm very excited to see you catch up to the J and T years and 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 get to experience that episode by yeah. episode. I, I have technically four full years of Tom Baker left, which that's is true. more than any other doctor. Yeah, that's more but, than like half of the J and T yes. tenure. And yet I feel like. I'm on such a roll, I'm like, that's I got nothing left. Yeah. I'm sad I don't have enough Tom Baker left. But it's like, no, I actually have more than half of his run. Yeah. And his run is longer than anyone else's. But yeah, uh, Doctor Who's great. Um, we're just going to talk about this here. Digimon story, Cyber Sleuth, Hacker's Memory. Yes. To recap, this is the... Actually, I want to talk about this. Is it the sequel? We'll figure this out. It's it's an, it's yet another side story. I think That's it's what it is. Frame it in the game. Um, the well, just for now, quote unquote sequel to the 2016 undisputed game of the year, Digimon Story Cyber Sleuth. Yes. Which sure. y'all think I'm saying that ironically? If you didn't listen to us in 2016, that was my game of the year yeah. that year. It was yeah, close I, to the top. Yeah, on my it list. was like number two or three for me. I don't remember which. I think it was, no, it was might have been four because yeah. that was also Doom and Uncharted Four was that year. Yeah, I don't. It was in my top half. I'm pretty yes, sure. Yes, it was. Um, but anyway, we talked about it a bunch that year. You do not have to have played Digimon to enjoy it because I know the only Digimon I know is this one game. Yeah, and now this second game. And anyway, we loved that game. It's it's just a phenomenal JRPG. Has a lot of echoes of like a Persona in it. Um, it's like Pokemon on crack on the yeah. battle side. Not even on crack, like Black Tar Heroin or something. Yeah. It's it's but, like Pokemon invaded from an alternate dimension and took over. Like it's it's crazy. Uh, and now we have Digimon Story Cyber Sleuth Hacker's Memory came out Friday. We will be doing a fuller review discussion in the weeks to come. Uh, I have not had much time to play it. I've played two or three hours. I'm in chapter three, I think. You have played more. How much have you played? Um, I'm. I just got to chapter five, and I've. It, it's hard to determine exactly how much I've played because they do something that I think is kind of hilarious. That you can import your save from the the first Digimon Story Cyber Sleuth, which does a number of things. Like you get to sort of retain your your Digimon like compendium thing, which I like, so that like all the Digimon you like discovered in the last game, you don't are not like blacked out anymore. Um, so that way, like, you know, the thing it's most convenient for is that I know which ones are the new Digimon when I'm digivolving and stuff like that. And I like that. One of the other things it does is it carries over your playtime clock. And so, and just to frame this, 
so that people, you know, to make this feel more appropriate, I did play Digimon Story Cyber Sleuth over the course of like two months because that yeah. came out in January 2016. I played that until about March and I got every single Digimon of the game. I played it on hard. Like I did everything. I did basically everything you could do in that fucking game. And so right now in Digimon Story Cyber Sleuth Hacker's Memory, I'm at 140 hours. You played that game more than me. Yes. Yeah, because I, I know my baseline is around 68 hours. Okay. Because yeah. that's what it took me to finish the original. Yeah. I so. don't know how much of that 140 hours is like me actively playing the game and how much of that is like, you know, it just being on while I'm doing something else. But Yeah, yeah. It, it's a mystery how much, like, maybe I've spent more time playing Digimon Story Cyber Sleuth. I have no idea. Maybe you blacked out one night and just played Digimon. It's entirely possible. Uh, so, But you have played, you said, around 10-ish hours of... That's what it feels like to me. Yeah. yeah. Um, what do you think? I really like it. Um, it's something that you have to have your, like, expectations for what it is set properly, which is something that I already knew, because I sort of, like, read up on the game before it came out, of that it is, it's not Digimon Story 2. Like, it's very deliberately not Digimon Story 2. I think they're probably making a Digimon Story 2 right now. This is basically, like, a gigantic expansion in yes. some way. So that, it, by gigantic, I mean... I've played about 10 hours and I'm at the beginning of chapter 5 and I looked up and there are 18 chapters in the game. So I assume it's about as long as the original Digimon story Cyber Sleuth. But it, it, it takes place, the story takes place parallel to the story of the original Digimon story Cyber Sleuth where you're playing a, a different protagonist who is sort of this, this hacker character that is working behind the scenes sort of in the story of the original Digimon story Cyber Sleuth. On, on different stuff is going on, and you kind of see the edges of the original story in places, and you act, interact with characters um, that are sort of more mysterious at the beginning of Digimon Story Cyber Sleuth, and you're kind of like paired up with them in different ways at the beginning of Hacker's Memory. And so it's this interesting alternative perspective on the events of that game while telling its own story with its own cast of characters. And then it has a solid probably like 50 or 60 new Digimon. It has some new areas. But it also reuses a bunch of assets. It reuses like most of the music. Like you're going to the same, like a lot of the same dungeons of like like Kulun and that kind of stuff. So it, it's heavily reusing stuff from the original game. But it is definitely telling its own story and doing its own thing in a lot of ways. So it's, it's an interesting balance of new and old. Yeah, I knew really nothing about this game going into it. I just, I knew I was going to play it. I didn't look anything up. I'd heard... Like from people on Twitter that it looked kind of similar, and I just I didn't I had no preconceived notions. I, I just yeah. wanted to play more Digimon, and I turned it on. And about you know once I realized what they were doing with it, that this is basically Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead for Digimon, more or less. Yeah, um, I had a big smile on my face because I think you know the original, the first game is is such a masterclass of JRPG storytelling and design, and it is so charming that. You know, 70 hours in that game wasn't enough for me. I loved it so much, I would gladly spend another 70. And I think the opportunity to do that while having an all-new scenario, new characters, some new Digimon to find, um, and a new story to propel you through it, that's more than enough for me. Like, yeah. you know, uh, if they did this five times, I'd get tired of it. But for now, like, it's just the... Again, and I have not played it a ton, but I really like the story I've seen so far. Love all the new characters. I think it... It's it's paced in an I don't even want, I don't want to say bad I don't want to say weird just in an interesting way early on because it's not re-tutorializing everything for you right. but it also needs to spend its own time setting up a new story so it's in this kind of weird I've never felt a JRPG start quite like this one does but I like it it really just feels like it kind of takes the torch from where the first one left off 
um, telling a new alternate story. The biggest thing for me so far is, you know, it's been two years since I played Digimon. I've played a lot of games since then. Trying to remember the contours of the original story and, like, who's who is a little hard. It has not bothered me so far yet because I feel like they reintroduce things well enough. Yeah. That, like, it's like, I don't really remember what Zaxxon did. But, you know, I'm meeting them again, and they're the hacker group, and I get it, you know? Yeah, yeah. I, I, like, went onto the Digimon fan wiki and reread, like, the, like, you know, half-page plot summary. I'm going to have to do that. that, Because it's just, like, it's nice to, like, refresh the memory and, like, look at some pictures of the characters and be like, okay, right, that guy's that guy, that okay. Yeah, I understand things. But I've been smiling the whole time I've been playing it, and good God, that music is so good. Yeah, no, it, it's just for me, I, even though it's only been two years, like, I'm weirdly, like, extremely nostalgic about Digimon Story Cyber Sleuth. I mean, because, maybe exactly because it is exactly two years ago, it is from right before... It's from the before times. Yeah, it's from right before the beginning of the election season and all that shit started, you know, because it, it was it was January of 2016 when I just randomly stumbled upon Digimon Story Cyber Sleuth <laughs> out of frustration that my fucking Tomb Raider save got corrupted. Like, that's how all this started, was I played the, the like, Tomb Raider remake and my my save got corrupted, thank- and I wanted to play something else, and then that was just on the store for like 40 bucks. Thank God that happened. Yeah. What if your Tomb Raider save hadn't been... I know it's it sucks for Tomb Raider, but like, Digimon's better anyway. Oh, yeah, this is, is yeah. amazing. This yeah. is... What a happy uh, twist of fate. Yeah. It's just... It's a, it's a very happy game from a happier time in all our lives, and it, I'm having a lot of fun going back and playing it. I really like, in particular... Um, how they sort of frame the main character in this one, in the narrative, of that he's... And, like, like multiple people, particularly early on in the game, when they encounter him, just repeatedly refer to him, like, as if he's, like, an NPC. Like, they, they literally use, like, the word mob face in, in Japanese that's, like, to mean, like, you're someone who's, like, in a background character because he's this very plain-looking dude, particularly when you see him before he has his, like, cool blue hoodie from his his uh, hacker group that he joins when they do the flashback. And you see this just, like, he's just looks like he would be, like, like he would have a... He would be blank in Persona 5. Like, that's how, in the background, his character design is. And he's just sort of thrust into the events of this game. And I use that to sort of inform... My, uh, I've, I've been using that to inform my Digimon choices of what I do, and I really like they give you three Digimon choices, um, like in, in the first game, and I picked Gotsumon, who's I did the, too, the rock guy. Yeah, he looks like a, just a pile of rocks, like, all, but like a, a guy, and the great thing about Gotsumon is that he's like two subsequent dig- Digivolutions just look exactly like that, only a different color. And so it's like, it, he's the most plain-looking fucking Digimon. I mean, that Digimon is literally in the original show just like a background kind of Digimon that, like, is a, like, villain in... Like, not even, like, the main villain in an episode of the week. He's, like, a henchman of the main villain of an episode of the week. That's not even a henchman of the main villain for, like, the main story arc or whatever, you know? So it's just, like, having that be my poke, my, my Digimon of choice and then having him Digivolve and then he's now Digivolved again and he looks the exact fucking same... But then one of the things they did add to the game is that you can get cosmetic items you can put onto your Digimon. Um, and if you import your save, you get um, a pair of goggles. Um, that is nice. like what the pair of goggles uh, that the protagonist of the first game wore. And so I put that on my rock dude. And so he's just chilling with me all the time with his cool fucking goggles on. And I have this giant fucking dragon monster next to him now because I'm at the third tier Digimon. And I just have my little rock dude. And he's my main bud. We, I've... I've 
I'm going to keep him with me forever. <laughs> like, like in the first game, I completely lost track almost immediately of which one was my original Digimon. I am dedicated now. This little dude with goggles is going to be with me forever. I like how it, like, this game clearly assumes you've played the first, and you yeah. should play the first first, obviously, but, like, I like how it can just jump into some of the deeper lore that doesn't come into play until deep into Cyber Sleuth. Yeah. And just kind of foreground that because you're a different character, different perspective. It's very cool. And I just, I think the world of this game is more than rich enough to support kind of a second campaign, mm-hmm. which is what this is. Uh, I, I'm loving it so far. I mean, I'm really excited to dive into it. And I've been busy with a couple other things this weekend, including frantically finding time to watch The Phantom Menace. Yeah. Um, but yeah, no, it's cool. And I'm excited to talk about it in depth Yeah. when we get there. You want to move on to a couple pieces of news? What's going on in the news, Jonathan? All right. Sean, you want to make fun of DC and their movies for a second? It's, you know, it's, it's what we need to do to sustain ourselves, Jonathan. It's the nourishment for us these years. Uh, in Variety this week, we learned that the Flash movie, which may or may not wind up being called Flashpoint, right, um, may or may not be like their like get out of jail free card in yes. this whole mess, uh, has hired directors John Francis Daly and Jonathan Goldstein to direct. To remind you, this is at least the third pair and possibly fourth to sign on to direct the Flash movie. It was originally tied to. Um, Phil Lord and Chris Miller, the Han Solo directors. I don't know if they were confirmed to direct, but they were writing it. They dropped out very early on. Then it was... um, uh, I forget the name of the dude. It was the guy who did Abraham Lincoln Vampire Hunter. That fell through. Then it was uh, another director, indie director, who seemed like kind of an interesting choice. That fell through. Finally, they directed these guys. I have no faith whatsoever the movie will actually get made. Yeah. Um, John Francis Daly is a, started his career as an actor. He's one of the main characters on Freaks and Geeks from the mm-hmm. 1999. Uh, great young actor. And he's been on... I think he was on Bones, the, the show with the guy from Angel, Dave yeah, Boreanaz. Yeah, Dave yeah. Yeah, and Zoe Deschanel's sister. Um, but yeah, the, the, she was on Bones. Anyway, now he started directing with Jonathan Goldstein. They also tend to write their movies, but they're not writing this. They directed the Vacation remake, which no one liked, but they also wrote the first draft of Spider-Man Homecoming, so they have some superhero experience. Like, Spider-Man and The Flash are close enough that those are transferable skill sets. Um, Apparently a writer named Joby Harold is doing the script. He's done a page one rewrite, so they've gone back to the drawing board on whatever the story for this movie was. I don't know. I don't think this movie's ever actually getting made. Yeah. Like, now they're on a extended hiatus because Ezra Miller is doing the next Fantastic Beasts movie. Uh, his character died at the end of the first one, so I don't know what they're doing with that. But anyway, um, that's not the the worst of that movie's problems. Uh, Johnny Depp. Anyway, yeah. Um, so yeah, that's that's that. Ha ha, lols. Flash got a new director. Did it? Did it really though? I don't know. Like, can a movie get a new director if it never comes out? Uh, that's true. That's very true. Yeah, I uh, uh, like. Here's for context where DC is right now. Last week, the movie Jumanji, Welcome to the Jungle, which is a good movie, a lot of fun, um, surpassed Justice League at the worldwide box office. Right. So, yeah, they got trounced by the Jumanji sequel. You know, I think they have some soul-searching to do. It is nice to see that if you make enough bad movies, people will stop watching them. Yes. Like, once once you break down that barrier and your movies are shitty enough for long enough, it doesn't matter how many pop culture icons you put in it, that will not fix it. It is amazing, like, you have to fuck up pretty bad for a movie called Justice League to do less than your standalone Superman movie, Man of Steel. To do less than the Jumanji sequel with The Rock. You know, like, that's that's bad. Anyway, 
There was also a rumor I read this week online from multiple sources. I'm not even really going to attribute it, so take it with a grain of salt. Um, that Ben Affleck, we, we hear these every few months, that Ben Affleck is really looking for the off-ramp on Batman. Yeah. But he doesn't want to just pull the ripcord because he and WB, you know, they have a bromance going on. And he wants to direct another Oscar-winning movie for them one day. And apparently Suicide Squad 2, which is the next movie to shoot, is where he's going to have his last appearance as Batman. Uh, you'll remember he has one scene in Suicide Squad 1 where he pulls Harley Quinn out of a river, puts her in the back of his car, and then furiously makes out with her against her will. Yeah, he huh. date rapes Harley Quinn. That was a weird... No one talks about that. That happened in Suicide Squad. And it's the worst thing Batman has done in these movies. Huh. So, yeah. Um, yeah. Anyway, so he might be in that, and then, I don't know, the Joker will kill him or something. Or I mean, he... That would be great if, if he is so... Just, like, really doesn't want to be Batman. What if he, like... Forces them to kill off his version of Batman. Here's just my, like, here's here my, go, put me in the fucking ground. Here's my pitch. This is free, Warner okay. Brothers. Is that he's in a room with Jared Leto's Joker for 30 seconds and he kills himself. <laughs> just <laughs> out of sheer annoyance. Did he ever, was did, was he and the Joker in, ever like face to face in Suicide Squad? Just when he like arrests, like he's on the hood of the car uh, and like, yeah, but no. I, I would just be hoping that like he says like, oh God, you got another tattoo. What did you do? You used to be a, one of my, you used to be my arch villain and I, what the fuck did you do to yourself? Anyway, so yeah. Um, but what I, my favorite detail from all this is that Matt Reeves, who is uh, co-writing and directing the new Batman movie that they're trying to make. Um, and we've heard this every couple months. He is adamant he wants to recast Batman. He wants to have his own Batman in the movie. He doesn't think the Ben Affleck one works. He's you know writing this under the assumption he will not have to accommodate the Ben Affleck Batman. They're even at this point thinking of that having that movie be just outside the other continuity. So Batman will, like the Chris Nolan movies, just be in its own universe, which, fine, whatever. But like... Um, I just think that's hilarious. That, yeah. like, they, they greenlit this Batman movie as something Ben Affleck might be directing, and now the guy who's actually directing it is like, I don't want Ben Affleck in my movie. That Batman didn't work. Uh-huh. It's amazing. And, yeah, I, uh, I just don't know what they're doing. I, like, my honest guess on where this is all headed is that I think most of the projects that aren't Wonder Woman 2 are going to get canceled. I think Suicide Squad 2 probably comes out and doesn't do that well. I think Wonder Woman continues to be a success. I don't know if they ever do Flash. The Aquaman movie is coming out. It's done. But, like, I think they will go back to having, like, regular Batman movies, like under Chris Nolan. Because they do have a really talented filmmaker attached in Matt Reeves. Yeah, And he could make a great Batman movie. And I think eventually we'll just have Batman movies, Wonder Woman movies, but there won't be any connection to a cinematic universe. I think that's where they're headed. Yeah, that would make sense to just, like, you know, fold it. Just go home. It's like, okay, let's just do what we used to do. Yeah, just yeah. make move. Like, you can have a fucking Flash movie and just have it be its own thing. It's like, you don't have to have Batman in the Flash movie. Batman doesn't even have to be around. Like, he doesn't even have to exist in that world. The Flash can just go do stuff. Wonder Woman can just go do stuff. Batman can just go do stuff. It's like, it's fine. It's just fine. Yeah, I don't know. Anyway, uh, let's see. That's it for DC, yeah. lol. Uh, Dragon Ball Super. Yes. Yeah. Uh, Dragon Ball Super, which is a show you've seen more of than I, but we love Dragon Ball as a rule here. Uh-huh. Uh, there were a lot of headlines you might have read this week, which was Dragon Ball Super cancelled. That is uh, journalistically dishonest. Yeah. Um, it's not strictly accurate. What we All we know, and actually it looks like there's been a little more news about this, so I will read some of this. I am looking at the news report from the fan site Konzenshu, because they do the best research on this stuff. Um, 
Dragon Ball Super is going off the air in March. We don't know if that's for a hiatus. We don't know if that's for the end of the series. Its time slot is being given over to another show called GGG no Kitaro. Gegege no Kitaro. Gegege no Kitaro. And which is like the like fifth or something. Gegege no Kitaro is like an old, old, old school manga. The important note for this show, they have recast Kitaro. It's oh. Miyuki Swashiro. So nice. Yes. Does, so. does this show get your Miyuki Swashiro award for peculiar excellence? I, I haven't watched it yet. It's, okay. it's entirely possible. There's no reason why it, could, it only goes to video game. Yeah. Um, so Dragon Ball Super will be going off the air on 25th March. That'll be its last episode for now. That looks like it'll be episode 131. We already knew from previous news reports the Universe Survival Arc, which is the current arc they're in, would be ending around that time. Yeah. Um, it just looks like they're going to wrap the show up. For a while, at least, there. Give a, the time slot over to this new show. This happens a lot for long-running anime. This is not unusual. This actually... This is how Dragon Ball Kai originally went off the air. Um, it was for Toriko, which was not a success. <laughs> but anyway. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, now, there, it looks like there has been a little more news about this. Uh, the website Daily Sports Online posted an article early Friday morning, Japan time, regarding the time slot programming change, noting that Dragon Ball's future broadcast was still under discussion. The official Dragon Ball Super Twitter account has posted later that same day, acknowledging the upcoming arc concluding. Um, the note read in an English translation, Thanks for always supporting us. The TV series Dragon Ball Super's universe survival arc finally reaches its climax at the end of March, so please support us to the end. There's a movie this December, too, reminding us that there's a new movie coming out, um, and the Dragon Ball series will continue on, so look forward to it. And finally, Seiji Nakazawa from Rocket News 24 asked Fuji TV about Dragon Ball Super's fate, and there was this Q&A. Uh, is Dragon Ball Super ending? Yes, the series presently on air will end here for now. Really, so it's not just changing to another time slot. At present, it is ending. Beyond that, it is still undecided. This is a very Japanese answer. Yeah. Um, yeah, they're not yeah. going to tell no. you anything. Yeah. Um, and then they, they have a lot of other non-answers. So the answer right now is that, you know, like this kind of show in Japan frequently doesn't just end. It kind of stops and then it's decided later if it's over. Yeah. I and mean, just to give context, like, it's been going one episode a week for about three years now. So. It's almost gone as long as the original Dragon Ball anime. Yeah. So, so it's, yeah, it's not uncommon for something like this to go on hiatus. It's also extremely successful, so, yeah. and extremely popular. But I think the other thing is that there's a movie coming out in December. Yeah. It's not going to be this exact animation staff, but a lot of the people who work on the Dragon Ball movies work on the show. They can't really do both at once. Certainly, like, there was a way they kind of worked that out back when Dragon Ball Z was on the air. Part of that was the movies were 45 minutes long, and they had more, you know, leeway on this. But yeah, so, you know, they've got a new theatrical film. I think it makes sense that the anime would have to stop for at least a little while. Um, I would not be surprised in the slightest if Super comes back at some point in the future. It also makes sense, like, Akira Toriyama's working on the movie. I assume yeah. the, the main people from the anime are going to go over to the movie. You know, and all good things come to an end. Dragon Ball, as we have seen over the last decade, is not a franchise that dies. Yeah. You know, like, it was over for a long time, and then it wasn't. You know, it's Dragon Ball has had this incredible renaissance, and I think it's led people to be like, Dragon Ball's always been on the air. No, from 1996 to Kai... Which wasn't really a new series. Yeah. It was gone. You know, there was no like Akira Toriyama did a couple little manga things, but there was no new Dragon Ball other than in games. So, yeah, yeah. No, I'm expecting it that you know, the, so many of the current story arcs are concluding with the Tournament of Power arc. I'm, I like. It makes so much sense to me to like take a break at there, work on the movie, have the movie come out, like 
give time for some other stuff like the manga project that is behind to, to catch up, like the video game stuff to get the new characters in there and, you know, put out like your billion like Dragon Ball Heroes arcade games, like all that shit. Yeah. And then pick up again next year or something like that. I like you mentioning the manga. That manga, if you haven't read it, is fucking amazing. And you should read it. And I've actually read more of the manga than I've seen of the show. Because I actually, I read Dragon Ball before I saw it. Right. And it just, it, it warms my heart. It's not Toriyama doing the manga. It's a fan artist named Toyotaro. But, um, so good. Anyway. Yeah, no. Dragon Ball Super is really good. I like, and I'm glad that they have sort of like, also put the flag in the ground for like, okay, I will wait until that... The last episode then airs, and then I will catch up. I've like stopped at yeah. kind of a good spot a couple of weeks ago, and I've let episodes bank up. I'm like, okay, that's there. That's my goalpost. I'll wait till then, and then I'll marathon those like 15 episodes or something. And I'll marathon those 130 episodes. Yeah, you've got a lot longer of a project ahead of you. We'll see. I can't do Dragon Ball and Doctor Who at the same time. It's yeah, hard. Yeah, they're very different shows. Because, you know, Doctor Who at least is discrete like four to six episode chunks. Yeah. Dragon Ball is discrete 20 to 30 episode chunks. Yeah, it takes, it takes a little bit longer. God, sometimes Dragon Ball is discrete 20 to 30 episode fights. <laughs> depending on, not, not like in Super, but no, maybe in yeah. Z back in the day. Yeah, anyway. Uh, so yeah, that's news. And then the last thing for this week, the big piece of video game news is Nintendo Labo. Yes. This was a completely unexpected announcement for Nintendo. It came out like Wednesday morning or something. Um, and it was, they just announced, they announced it with this cool little video. It's a project for kids where you buy these kits that are sort of like a cross between construction paper and Legos. I don't know. Yeah, it basically looks like, like a cardboard box that then has like cut out like patterns in that you sort of break apart and put together to form a toy that you put the switch in and then it uses motion controls to be a fishing rod or something like that. It almost looks like a better version of kind of what they originally pitched the Kinect to be in a weird way. Like, if you remember, the Kinect originally was going to, like, like you'd, like, hold a skateboard in front of the Kinect. It would scan in your skateboard and all that shit that it never actually did. Yeah, yeah. This feels like a, like... Like that, like pitch went back to the drawing board and came back as a much better idea. Yes, it also reminds me of like other Nintendo projects. Like this looks like a good version of Rob the Robot. Yeah, sure. And that it's like a thing that the, your console will interact with that allows you to play like a toy, like kids like to do. Yeah, but it's not a robot picking up a spinning top and putting it on a button on a controller to make yes. a door open. <laughs> yes, exactly. Um, no, I, I think this is one of the smartest things and coolest ideas Nintendo has had in years. Yeah, and Nintendo's on a bit of a roll. We've talked about. Yeah, like, I have no idea if it'll be successful or not, but it's a cool idea. It's a really cool idea. It, it feels like it's very in touch with their market, um, and also feels like it is now specifically catering to something the Switch has catered to, but not as specifically. Like, the Switch in its first year has actually been so geared towards what we would call mainstream gamers in terms of all the kinds of big, meaty game experiences they've put out that I'm sh there's plenty on there for kids to enjoy, but not as much as you would get in, like, the Wii, DS, Wii U era of things that feel, like, really specifically pitched at kids. Yeah. And this feels smarter than any of those projects. Like, other than maybe, like, a Wii Sports or something, to have, like, a very literal mix between the kind of toys that kids, especially in this day and age, with Minecraft and Legos and all the building and, like, science, technology, engineering, STEM kind of stuff kids are into... This feels like very of the moment, very finger on the pulse, the kind of thing parents are going to enjoy doing with their kids, and it feels like it leverages the portability of the Switch in really smart ways. Yeah. Is it something I, as a 25-year-old male, have an interest in buying? No. Is that completely okay? Yes. Yeah. Because you know what? They're also putting out fucking Dark Souls. Right. They can do both. Yeah. You know? No, like, yeah, it is like, 
certain sections of the internet had this response of like, you do realize like not every product that comes out is free. Like it just feels like someone watching a commercial for diapers would be like, I could take a shit in the toilet. What's this bullshit? I don't need these. What's going on? Like, like it's not for you, asshole. Like, come on. Indeed. No, and I love like they have in the in the trailer. There's also like this separate pack they're going to release with like pens and stickers, and you can color and personalize. I don't know. It sounds like a very neat idea for families that is not as actively predatory as like Amiibo. Yeah. <laughs> and not as I don't know simplistic. You know, as as like a Nintendo Land or something. I, I feel like it, it 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 definitely fits a market that gaming has not aimed specifically at in a while. If that yeah. makes sense, because like the PS4 and Xbox have nothing like this, especially now that Disney Infinity is dead and Skylanders yeah. is kind of on the down low yeah, at the yeah. moment. The toys to life game genre seems mostly gone. Yeah, now. and I say that about Amiibo. Let's be honest. Most of the people buying Amiibo are weird adults like me. Yeah, weird people with, like, bad, like, collection habits. Yes. So, no, this feels like something kids will actually be interested in. A different way to use the Switch. And, you know, I think they were smart to do this, like, a week after the Nintendo Direct. Because the one thing you can't accuse them of is doing this at the expense of normal games. The Switch has plenty of great games coming out for whatever kind of gamer you are. And they've got their cool thing for kids. I think this is going to sell like hotcakes. And, you know, Nintendo's domination will continue. Yeah. My one concern, looking at it from the perspective of me as, like, an eight-year-old, I, will, I would have broken this thing in about five seconds. This is what it looks like to me. That's my main concern, is just, like, that's... that No, that cardboard's not going to last. That's, that's dead. That's gone. Like, I saw the kid play with the fishing rod. It's, like, five seconds after that, that thing is broken. Because no kid is going to be able to keep that thing intact. Like, how long did your, like, cardboard tube swords last? One fight... And yeah. then, it's done. then it's done. It's over. It's gone. Well, you know, for Nintendo, that could be a feature, not a bug. Who exactly. knows? Exactly, yeah. All it's right. their new profit. Sean, do you want to talk about Star Wars? I, we've never stopped talking about Star Wars in some ways, Jonathan. It's the, un- it's the current underneath this podcast. That is very true. Although, you know, we have not gone as directly into it sometimes as I think we, our instincts want us to. Because there's always other things going on. Yeah, it's just never been the main topic. And, you know, some years we've had, like, Force Awakens or Rogue One that you weren't that interested in. And, you know, this year I think there was this nice convergence with The Last Jedi, which we were two of the rare people on the internet that didn't go apoplectic over it. Yeah, we both we both basically agreed. <laughs> like, we, most we act, people didn't. We acted like humans about yeah. it. But let's recap from the beginning of the show why we want to talk about the prequels. And maybe more, depending on where we go with it. Again, it's because it's something that... I mean, these are movies you and I have been grappling with literally all our lives. Yes, this came out in 1999, so we were like seven and eight. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, so we've been watching these movies, thinking about these movies. We grew up with these movies. We've talked about the nostalgia side of it, and I largely want to eschew that here unless it comes up organically. That's not the point. This isn't a reminiscence. I want to take this as a film and talk about it as a film, not as a cultural phenomenon, not as a point of internet ire, although we will have to address that at some point, yeah. um, but as a movie that was very successful, that was very influential, that was extremely controversial, obviously, Yeah. Um, but also I think has a lot to pick apart and to talk about in a genuine critical fashion, not in a let's make a YouTube video where we shit all over the movie. Yeah. So let's start from that basic point, which is that I think you and I fall into a bucket with this movie that is pretty underpopulated, which is that we like it. Yes. And I would say there are things I don't like about it. 
I, I am no longer... There have been periods in my life where I was weirdly ashamed because of internet pressure and stuff to say I liked The Phantom Menace. I like The Phantom Menace. Yeah. Do you like The Phantom Menace? I will say, I will say two things. I like The Phantom Menace, and The Phantom Menace is a good movie. Yes, there's two both, different things. Both yeah. Of the, yeah, there are two different things in there, both in my opinion. Well, one of them I can say definitively is true. I definitively like the movie. Yes. In my opinion, I think it is a very good movie. I think it's a very good movie. I think there are things that you could do better in it that would make it a better movie. Yeah, as with almost every <laughs> single movie ever yes. made, or every single movie ever made. But, you know... Here's where I kind of want to start, Okay. one thought. Well, t- I want to get into the question of just why do you like it, and I'll ask that question. But I think another thing that's part of the impetus of the project for me, um, The Phantom Menace has this wonderful opening crawl, uh-huh. where it starts with, the galaxy is in turmoil, and you're like, alright, I've heard that before. The taxation to the outlying star systems is in dispute. Yes. And you're like, oh. And I think that right there is where the movie loses so many people. Mm-hmm. Because that is not the Star Wars you knew when you were a kid. Yeah. It's the Star Wars we knew when we were kids, because we saw these as kids. True. But... I don't think we quite understood the implications of, like, the taxation disputes of the Trade Federation when we were seven, but... But two thoughts on that. When I watched it last night, I always, when that line in the opening crawl comes up, I laugh because I think it's so fucking funny that George Lucas had the... Either audacity or just I don't think he really thinks about the outside world that much. Yeah, I think he just didn't give a shit. Yeah, to put that as the first line in his first Star Wars movie in 16 years. You know, when this came out, it was one of the most anticipated films of all time. And that's how it opens. I love the audacity of that. And two, when I watched it last night, I realized, oh, there's a point to that. Yeah. There's a point to George Lucas starting this movie with saying, the galaxy is in turmoil. That is how, it's a period of civil war is how A New Hope starts, similar sentiment. But why is it in turmoil in this film? It's because of shitty bureaucracy. And you can say, oh, George Lucas didn't get it, lols, he just, you know, it's too complicated and convoluted. It's like, no, I think it's very deliberate to start by subverting your expectations and saying, the point of this new trilogy is not about a civil war rebellion. Yeah. It's about taxation to the outlying star systems. And there is a fucking point to that. Whether the movie makes that point well, whether you like that point, I hate the disengagement with the movie. Mm-hmm. And, third thought, that is George Lucas also. Throughout this whole movie, throughout episode two, throughout episode three, he is actively trying so hard to extend the definition of what Star Wars is from where he left off. And whenever anyone complains about Force Awakens or Rogue One or Last Jedi, is like, they're too similar well, you, you didn't have that complaint with Phantom Menace, and you still hated it. Yeah. So you cannot be pleased. It's either too similar or not similar enough, and really what you want is you want to go back in time and watch Star Wars when you were eight. Yeah, yeah, you want the impossible. But yes, I, that is one of those things that, like, that line in the opening crawl is one of the things that makes me want to talk about this movie. But let's back up a second. Okay. Sean, why is The Phantom Menace a good movie, and why do you like it? Um, okay, there's a lot of stuff in this. So there's, like, there's... As with any Star Wars movie for me, there are, like, two sides. There's the me Star Wars fan, the me, like, fan of well-made pieces of art, right? Yes. So, like, the, the, like, fan of good movies side of me is, like, I think, I think it is exceptionally directed. I think, like, the editing is great. I think, like, the, the eye for cinematography is fantastic. I think there's lots of brilliant images in this movie. I think it flows really well. I love the pacing, in particular when you contrast it with the pacing of the newer Star Wars movies. This one is much slower paced. It takes its time. It spends time in the world. And, and, but the biggest stuff for me is that I think it is, 
in many ways, I think this movie is maybe the most exceptional example of world building I've ever seen in a film. Oh, like, I, that was one of the points yeah. I was going to make. I think it's just, and in, in, in a lot of ways, the movie to me is, it's a story about the world, and it's not a story that's necessarily about, like, a specific character. I think a lot of, like, complaints I've seen about The Phantom Menace, a lot of them sometimes revolve around, like, oh, there's no protagonist. There's no, like, 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 like trying to make this sort of, like, you know, film student or like like story student argument of like, oh, it, it it defies like storytelling structure. It's like, no, you're not. Your your definition of what storytelling structure is just too limited. It's like it's not about a protagonist. The story is not about Qui Gon Jinn. The story is not about Anakin. It's not about Obi Wan. The story is about the setting. The story is about the world, and that the star of the movie is the setting and the world and the way it develops and evolves over the course of the film. I, it always strikes me the first twenty minutes of this movie. Let me. I made a note of this in my notes last night. Within twenty minutes, we're on a trade federation ship. Yeah. We meet a bunch of new droids. We meet a bunch of new alien species. Then we're on Naboo in the forests, see a planet we've not seen in Star Wars before. Then we are underwater, meeting a whole new species. I know some of you hate that species. My point still stands. Yeah. It's a, especially like, you know, you can hate Jar Jar all you, all you want. The Gungan society and like the aesthetics of it and the whole underwater city, I love all that. I think yeah. it's so cool. We're underwater. Then we go through that whole thing with the planet core, which has a fun little action sequence in it. And then we're in the Naboo capital being introduced to this whole new, like, aesthetic that we've literally never seen in Star Wars or really big-budget science fiction. That's 20 to 25 minutes of this film. That's before you meet Anakin Skywalker. That's before you meet... I guess Darth Sidious has had a hologram scene. That's before you really get into the meat of the film. I, I agree. That was going to be my first point, too. I think The Phantom Menace, and I think this extends to the other prequels, but I think this movie does it best, as a piece of world building, it is unimpeachable, it is acceptable, or it is exceptional, and I think that is one of the most criminally underrated things about this film. Yeah. Because especially, it, it's because for me, the only real competition it has is the Lord of the Rings movies, yep. but those have the foundation of the most exceptional piece of world building in literature, with like, like fictional world building in literature with the Lord of the Rings books and like the whole mythology and everything that, that Tolkien created where he made like multiple languages and shit. It's like... Like, Phantom Menace doesn't have a basis in any other work of literature or, like, something like that, or, like, a direct basis in that. The only basis it has is in the original trilogy Star Wars movies, which it defies at so many turns. Like, it looks at what those movies did and said, like, well, we'll do something different than that. You did, like, it's not Stormtroopers, it's not X-Wings, it's not TIE Fighters, it's not, like, the Jedi are way different than what the Jedi are in the original trilogy, like, like how the, the fight scenes are, like, everything about the world it, is very different from what the original trilogy was because it's a different fucking, it's, you know, it's 30 years before, like, a tremendous change took place with the fall of the Republic, so it makes sense that everything is so different. It's, it's, you know, this is the first time I've seen the movie since, uh, maybe, I think it was the 3D release in, like, 2012, but in any case, it's the first time I've seen it since the Disney Star Wars movies started coming out. Good or bad, whatever your thoughts, I generally like the Disney Star Wars movies, and I think the latest one was exceptional, but Star Wars is clearly, from now and for the foreseeable future, it doesn't have to be the case forever, but for the foreseeable future, Star Wars is a referential franchise. Yeah. It is about looking at the past and remixing that. It is amazing to me how aggressive the Phantom Menace is in not doing that. 
Like, it's most... It has a lot of little things that are obviously prequel nods. It's doing world building in service of getting to episode four. But, like, one of the most overt, like, prequel-itis things it does is having, like, a Jawa in the pod race. Right. Like, it very rarely winks to the audience. It very rarely just throws something in there for comfort food. It is... George Lucas said, All right, I made three Star Wars movies 20 years ago. I'm going to make new movies, but I'm going to continue building. Like, I don't really care what I did back then. I have a new story to tell. And again, you don't have to like that story, but I think it's pretty amazing. And it speaks to the independence George Lucas had built up at this point, that he had the freedom to do that, to just say, like, I'm not making Star Wars... Literally, I'm not making Star Wars 7. I'm making Star Wars 1. I'm going back. I'm building a new world. Yeah. And I think it's really easy to take that part of it for granted. But especially because we've had, in the last three years, three movies that share, at the very least, a heavy aesthetic DNA with the original trilogy, I always forget how much I love the look of the prequels. Yeah. I don't always love how that look is executed. And we'll talk about some of the CGI stuff, especially when we get to episode 2 and 3. But in general, like the art direction, the cinematography, those elements, yeah, I think it's exceptional, and I think it's one of the most visually singular worlds ever built. Yeah, like, especially when you, like, I think my favorite part in that regard is the Gungan underwater city and everything having to do with that is so alien-looking, and it's so different, in it, but it also has... And it's everything about the world's building of this movie. It clearly has tremendous amount of thought put into it. Like, you can extrapolate a huge amount about the Gungan society and how it operates based on the little, like, contact time you have with it. You can, you can extrapolate a huge amount about how, like, the Naboo society works, the way that the Galactic Senate works, the way that the Jedi Council and the Jedi Order works, which is something that we had never seen before in the Star Wars movies, was, like, the Jedi as an actual, like, organization, not just as a weird old dude in the desert, you know? And and all of those things you can extrapolate so much. You can extrapolate about, like, how the Jedi operate, how they fight. Like, all those things have a, just tremendous thought and creativity put into fully realizing it. So it's like every single frame in this movie feels completely realized. And, and the history and everything about it feels like it is there for you to dig into. Yeah, and and I think... I like what you said about the world is the story. And that is one of the things I think people miss in trying to find a direct, like, A to B, this is what it's about, hero's journey, whatever, you know? Because that's not... This movie has little things it borrows from the structure of A New Hope, like Anakin at the end getting in a ship and going up and blowing something up. But it's not doing it ever in the same way. And yes, it is a story about the world. And that's one of the things that watching it today struck me so much, is that I actually think... As a script, it narratively leverages its strongest elements very well. Yeah. Like, you know, I don't think Jake Lloyd's Anakin is good at all, but I find it shockingly easy to overlook in this movie. And actually, in a way, I don't find it easy to overlook with Hayden Christensen in the sequels, because that's not what the movie's about. Like, he's there, and he fulfills his narrative function, and sometimes his line readings are annoying, But that never feels like that's the complete weight of the film because the weight of the film is on showing this culture, showing us all the holes in this culture and how it is in decline. And I love that it is ultimately this story about um, kind of the main mover of action in this film is Darth Sidious, it's Palpatine. And this entire movie, and I think this is such an interesting subversive thing that again people don't usually talk about. The entire like plot of this movie is a plan by him to get more power in the Senate to execute an evil plan later. 
And not a one of our heroes recognizes that. Yeah. Not a one of our heroes even comes close to realizing that, and he gets exactly what he wants at the end of the film. Yeah. And that's a fascinating thing, and we'll get into all the political subtext, but there are legitimate thematic ideas in how that's built. And I think some of the things that are easy to point out as clunkiness, like, you know, oh, why are we spending so much time on Naboo? Why are we talking about the Senate? Blah, blah, blah. It's like, that's, that's what it's about. Like, that's, it's about the world, and it's about the flaws in the world, and it's about the structure of the world. Yeah, and it is about how the 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 actual antagonist, like it's like the antagonist, in some ways you could argue the protagonist, like the character that is moving the story forward, basically at all points, is completely veiled in secrecy. So much that like the movie never even like directly makes the nod. The movie yeah. never even tells you that Palpatine is Darth Sidious. You just have to like look at all the menacing ways it lingers on Ian McDermott for like two seconds at the end of scenes. You're like, hmm, but like. I, there's a great story um, There's a film critic I quote sometimes Named Drew McWeeny Really like his work um, He writes He does this series Called Film Nerd 2.0 Where he writes about Watching movies with his kids And he's released All these articles As a book now Of showing Star Wars To his kids for the first time I highly 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 Recommend you read that It's awesome He showed it to them In the order of Four five Flashback one two three six, And it worked really well For them Because they didn't know Vader was Luke's father And then going back To episode one They'd never seen The Emperor they were really shocked when they got to Revenge of the Sith and Ian McDermott was the Emperor. Like, it played as a reveal to them. And I love that it can play as a reveal to people yeah. who don't know, uh, and to kids especially, because Star Wars should always be accessible to children. Yeah. And I know that's a controversial statement for some fucking reason, but yeah. it should be. Anyway, um, but I love that it can do that while also, if you recognize that guy's face and voice from Return of the Jedi... There's this whole other narrative going on in this movie. Yeah. And I do love that the movie never feels it needs to explicitly nod to that. Yeah. It's just... It, and and it, Ian McDiarmid is very good at playing that of, like... You know, he's normally when he's being Palpatine, I think he does a very good job of being like... Yeah, he's, like, sort of like a background character that sort of, like, is sort of, like, doing the, like... You know, he's the voice for all the Senate stuff that's happening, but he doesn't really matter, is what he feels like. But then the camera lingers on him for, like, a second too long in a couple of scenes. And that's the only, like, real key it gives you, other than if you can recognize his voice. Yeah. No, all that stuff is great. Um, so, so, we think that's good about the movie. Another thing I think is so great about The Phantom Menace is the characters. Yeah. I really like the cast of this movie. And again... I can already hear people going, lol, Jar Jar. Table Jar Jar for a second. Yeah. I actually kind of like Jar Jar. Jar Jar's totally fine. But we'll get into that. Um, I think, when you say the movie is very well directed, I agree with the asterisk that I don't think George Lucas is or has ever been good with actors. Yeah, sure. I think actors who are good on their own can flourish in a Star Wars movie directed by George Lucas. And it just so happens that for A New Hope, he lucked out with an amazing fucking cast, including three unknowns who would go on to be the people they went on to be, you right. know? Um, some of the people in this movie did not go on to be those people. Or, like, Natalie Portman, at this point in her career, needed more direction than she got, even though she went on to be a great actress, you know, yeah. things like that. But I still really like the characters in this movie. I like the writing of the characters. I think Qui-Gon Jinn and Obi-Wan Kenobi in this movie are t maybe my two favorite characters in any Star Wars film. And just the way they are presented on film in The Phantom Menace, I've always loved them. Yeah. I love those characters. I love Palpatine in this film. Um, 
I love a lot of the kind of, you know, dregs of society in Tatooine we meet. Um, I think some of the people around Princess Amidala and those characters are cool. Again, I think Natalie Portman's performance is very, very wooden here, but I like Padme as she's written, at least, in a lot of this film. I think there's some interesting things. I really like the Gungan characters, and why don't we just get it out of the way right now? I find Jar Jar Binks funny, and I'm I'm done being ashamed to admit yeah. that. I laugh at Jar Jar. Yeah, I like I don't know if I find him like that funny, but I also don't find him that annoying either. Like I think I could like I think they cut to him too often in yes. some moments and make too many jokes. But like I think that's something they also do in the Last Jedi is they make too many jokes. Like I think like it's not that big a deal. Like you like yeah, you should have cut out a couple of these jokes probably, but Jar Jar is fine. Like, and he, func- he serves his narrative function in the movie really well. You need, like, some sort of character that can explain some things to Qui-Gon and Obi-Wan and have things explained to him by some of the characters at different points in the movie. He serves that role perfectly fine. I think as an example of special effects from 1999, it's kind of amazing. Like, it's the first time that had ever been fucking done. Yeah. And it's, like, an incredibly influential piece of special effects work. Incredibly influential piece of special effects work. I think Ahmed Best is really good in the role. And that dude has always owned it. Every time they did, they used that character in the Clone Wars cartoon, he always came back. So you gotta give that dude some fucking props. Have you ever watched any of the, like, behind-the-scenes stuff on The Phantom Menace? Yeah. It's really fascinating. Ahmed Best was hired to play... They were originally thinking they were going to do Jar Jar as mostly a physical costume with a CGI head. And then it was late in post-production... Or after they'd shot the movie, they were doing tests, they realized it was actually cheaper to just CGI the whole character than just do the head and match the movements. But he was on set every day with the people doing all the Jar Jar movements. And while it's not a mocap performance like Andy Serkis, everything that's animated is based on his movements. So there is also like a physicality within the frame of how he works and moves in the movie. You know, I think... I. Totally understand why Jar Jar annoys people. I don't understand why people have declared like a religious jihad on him. Yeah. Because I don't think anything in a movie has ever been as annoying as people make Jar Jar out to be. But like, you know, there are moments where he's so over the top and plays so much like a parody of this kind of character sometimes that I just, I've gotten to a point where I roll with it. Like, yeah. it's funny. It's, he's a goofy character. You're not, like people act like he's supposed to be a performance of Hamlet or something. Yeah. Like he's not. His name is Jar Jar Binks. Like he's just what he is. He's a very different character from anyone else in Star Wars. And I think for what he is, he's totally fine. I agree. The movie leans on him much too hard in some moments, but that's a, that's a separate issue technically. Yeah. You know? And so yeah, he is part of a larger cast of characters I enjoy. And there's a lot of small characters here. Boss Nass is fucking awesome. Yeah, he's great. I had kind of forgotten how fucking good he is. Brian yes. Blessed turns in a great fucking performance. I wish we had like here's a we're gonna get through this series. We're gonna do periodically check in with my list of characters I want to spin off of before a Boba Fett spin off. Okay. One of those is Boss Nass. Fucking, I want yeah. I want the Boss Nass movie where he is like dealing with politics in the Gungan Kingdom. Young Boss Nass, a Star yes. Wars story. I want that more than Han Solo or fucking Boba Fett. Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, I don't think they've ever... I'm sure they have established it in stuff that is probably no longer canonical. So in the, the brave new world of Star Wars canon, I imagine like Gungan lifespans have not been exactly addressed. So as far as we know, Bostas might be immortal. Absolutely. Far, I haven't read the book that proves that he can't be. He could be in Star Wars Episode Nine. <laughs> Just troll everybody. Yes, yeah, so that the beginning of the movie, Ray and Finn and, and everyone get like locked in an alternate dimension, and there's like there's only one person we can go to to save the day. It's Boss Fucking Nass. That big glowing ball at the end of Phantom Menace. That's the key to time. Exactly. Yes. 
No. Boss Nass is that's actually that's the fifth he's the fifteenth uh, doctor. That's it's <laughs> the whole thing. I mean there's nothing again, there's nothing saying that a Time Lord can't regenerate into a, a Gungan. Yeah. It's, it's all open. And here's a point I'll you know, I will as I said, we're not gonna dip into nostalgia except where it's relevant. Boss Nass, this one's relevant for me. My dad okay. my dad loved this movie. Loved Boss Nass, and he kind of. My dad looked a little like Boss Nass, and yeah, I know that I see that. Yeah. That sounds like an insult if you didn't know my dad. It's not. I love my dad. He loved this character, and it's always something that stuck with me when people say like their defense of the prequels is like, well, they were just for kids, and no adults like them. My dad loved these movies, yeah, more than a lot of people, and and, and I think the Gungan stuff he actually really liked because when you build a world this fully. There are things different people will latch onto, and that's proof that it's working, at least in part. Yeah. And I think the Gungan Society and Boss Nass is part of that. Of course, you've got Darth Maul, who's just one of the best fucking Star Wars yeah. characters. He's he's what Boba he is what people who talk about Boba Fett sound like what they're talking about. Yeah, he's yeah. an actual cool side character who does stuff. Yeah, exactly. It is like if Boba Fett like did something really cool in one of the movies instead of just standing there cradling his gun and then getting yeah. eaten by a Sarlacc pit. Yeah, because Darth Maul is just as cool a visual design, yeah. and he does way more in the movie. Yeah, he's got great, like, Ray Park, the the like martial artist who plays him, has fucking amazing body language. Yes, uh, and I think it's Peter Serafinowicz, whatever Sarah, it's called. Serafinowicz. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's a character actor, you'd know his face immediately. He's on, yeah. like, every TV show, uh, voiced Darth Maul, and I think has come back to do him in some of the other media. But yeah, um, love Darth Maul. I just, the cast, it's great, right? Yeah, yeah. Like, going back to Boss Nass for just a second, it, and, and the Jar Jar Binks thing, like, I think the moment where I was most prepared to just to the like, Jar Jar Binks works well in this movie, is, is that scene sort of like at the beginning of the third act, where Boss Nass takes Jar Jar to the side and tells him that he's going to be Bombad General, and then Jar Jar's like, what? And then faints, and then Boss Nass just walks off laughing? Yep. That's like, that's fucking funny. That fucking works. That tells you something about that character that I love. People act like George Lucas was completely tone deaf with Jar Jar, like he didn't know what kind of character he was making. George Lucas, I think you look at this movie, very obviously knew what character he was yeah. making. And you don't, again, you don't have to like it. It doesn't have to be your sense of humor. But I hate the just the knee-jerk dismissiveness of these things, you know? Yeah. That like, oh, only an idiot would make that. No, I, I think there's an actual intention behind yeah, George Irving's. It is something of like a lot of that reaction just feels like it's like ah, fucking like 15 year olds just like have to be super serious about shit. It's just a like a very adolescent response a lot of the time. Like it can be dumb and it's fine. Like, and you you cannot like it, and it's fine. Like, it's the way that people respond to Jar Jar Binks makes it feel like every time Jar Jar Binks is on screen, it's not just Jar Jar Binks, it's like the whole screen is just like bright white and a like screeching, like high-pitched noise plays at a deafening volume, and then as soon as it cuts away from Jar Jar Binks, that stops. It's like, that's not, it's just a, it's just a comic relief character that's yeah. maybe used a little bit too often. It's not a big deal. Yes, Exactly. Uh, and I, I would still say a well-performed comic relief yeah. character and, and digitally well-realized and all these things. So anyway, yeah. Um, you know, and, and it is so easy to get caught up in the Jake Lloyd of it all. There are so many good actors in this movie. Yeah. Like, just... Let's, let's focus in for a minute and talk about Qui-Gon and Obi-Wan. Because yeah. I love them so much. Liam Neeson came to play in this movie. Yes, he did. Yeah. He is so good. And Ewan McGregor... 
Hot off. I mean, they must have cast him out of like fucking train spotting. I love that you would watch train spotting and say, that's Obi Wan Kenobi. Yeah, that skinny Scotsman. That skinny, junky Scotsman. That's my young Alec Guinness. Yeah. But it works. Ewan McGregor is, and this is far from his best Star Wars performance. He's the, the absolute shining pinnacle of the next two movies. Yeah. Um, he's great in this. I love his rapport with Qui Gon. And so much of the, the, the film's world building. Isn't just in the visuals, it is in like the body language of these two characters together on this mission. In that, I think one of the smart narrative choices is that this movie drops us into the middle of the action very similarly to how A New Hope does it. It's just within this context. And yeah. this context isn't like, you know, a rebel starship, you know, fleeing from a much bigger empire starship. This context is these two Jedi have been commissioned by the government to go on an investigative mission about taxation, and shit goes south. Yeah. And that's what we have, and the whole movie is following them on the, like, results of that mission. And I think that's a very solid through line that has these two very solid characters who, just through them being on screen together, I think we learn a lot about both the good and the bad of the Jedi that we will come to learn a lot more about in the next two films. Yeah, like like this movie does so much to establish what the Jedi actually fucking are because the original trilogy, they're gone. And it's like Luke, and it's like one of the things that's really interesting about the original trilogy when you watch it with the knowledge of what the prequels like directly establish is that Luke is like a really different kind of Jedi, is doing really different shit, because he doesn't have any of that actual foundation. And this movie has to actually establish what is the Jedi Council. What are the Jedi Order. What is it like when you have like a thousand of these guys. Not just one or two of them. That, are, that have gone insane in isolation. And they have to operate as a bureaucracy. And they go on missions. And they're commissioned by the government to you know like go. As you said like to sort of like barter peace. And, and work on like this treaty. And, and everything between the Trade Federation and the Naboo people. And you are just dropped into the middle of like what you assume is like a day in the life of a Jedi in the height of the Jedi Order. And that's a really interesting concept. And I think the way that Liam Neeson in particular like holds that all together because because even McGregor is great, great as Obi-Wan, but Obi-Wan's sort of absent for large stretches of the movie. And Qui-Gon does so much to sort of sell you on the idea of what a Jedi is like, even then you then come to understand in the sort of last act of the movie that he's actually a little weird for a Jedi. And that like he's at odds with what the Jedi Council does. He's at odds with what Yoda wants to do. But it is it does so much. It's so evocative to me, this movie, and how it, it casts its Jedi and how they have to move through the world and respond to things and establish this is how the Jedi actually do shit. Because the original movie doesn't show you any of that stuff. And it's something that, as a Star Wars fan... So much Star Wars media that has no direct connection to the prequels in terms of setting owes so much to this movie and actually showing you what the Jedi are. Because it's like, Knights of the Old Republic would not be able to exist if the Phantom Menace didn't, like, put that flag in the ground and say, like, this is what this is like. And in a really interesting way. It's not just a boring, like, they're just samurai or they're just, like, Shaolin monks. There is no direct historical like comparison for what the Jedi, for the role the Jedi play in this movie, they're a really fascinating amalgamation of Shaolin monks and samurai and like Western European like knights and and all these different concepts that kind of come together to form this really weird like spiritual order of warriors that also work in tandem with a larger government force. And I think one of the genuine structural strengths of George Lucas's script 
is that it takes us on this journey where we learn everything you're saying about the Jedi. We get such a good sense by the end of this one film of like, this is what a Jedi is, this is what a Jedi is not in some cases, and the movie never has to just come to a stop and directly address the audience about that. I don't think it ever has to go out of its way organically to fit this in. It finds a journey to put these two characters, and primarily Qui-Gon Jinn, yeah. on, where you learn that. You see, you know, how do they function day-to-day -day going on like they're, they're going to do negotiations? Shit goes south. What do they do to get out of this kind of situation? How do they use their lightsabers? How, you know, what kinds of people do they interact with? What does Qui-Gon do when he's stranded on Tatooine and his only option is gambling? Yeah, he like, gambles like a motherfucker. Yeah, like, uh, like what are the limits of what is okay to do with the Force and what is not? And if you follow Qui-Gon, it seems like, it's like, whatever, dude, you can cheat. You can try to manipulate people and control their minds, even if it doesn't work for him in this movie. Yeah. Like, you can do whatever you want with the Force as long as it works to yes. your end. And then the movie, again, very organically, because this is a... I, I agree with what you said earlier on about that this is not... This doesn't pertain to the exact structure of other Star Wars movies. It is a three-act structure of a film. Yeah. like And actually an easily teachable one, because it's on three different planets, yeah. you know? But, like, you know, in the, in the transition to the third act, you get to Coruscant... And again, it feels natural that we go to Coruscant. The story has to take us there at this point. This is where they've been trying to go. And that's where we finally get the Jedi High Council and bureaucracy. And you get that in. And then you get to go back into the fray and see when the Jedi need to just throw down. How do they do it? But one of my favorite points my brother made when we were watching this last night, because I roped him in to watch it with me, and he didn't want to, and then by then he's like, yeah, this is actually kind of a good movie. <laughs> and, um, you know, be that la the, the climactic lightsaber fight, which I think is the one thing everyone agrees on. Yeah. It's the best lightsaber fight in Star Wars, and I think it's one of the best action sequences in any film ever. It's amazing. It's amazing. It is a it is a cinematic miracle. I feel watching that, I feel like I do when I watch like Mad Max Fury Road. Like right. I can't believe they did this. But one of the things in that scene is how character driven it is. That like through that scene, we see so many and this is what my brother Thomas was saying, is that you see kind of the spectrum of Qui-Gon Jinn as a Jedi in the you know, he's planning with Padme and everyone of like how they're gonna tactically address this. And then Darth Maul comes in and he and Obi-Wan are just like, all right, we're ready. We are always ready to throw down if we have to here. They throw down. And then when the moment comes where he has to sit down and meditate, he sits down and fucking meditates. Yeah. Like, there's all these different spectrums through that just one fight. And that's just one, you know, extended sequence of the film. I think if you put it into the film in general, I think it's really easy to underestimate how much you learn about this world and specifically this Jedi Order through this one movie. Yeah, and that it's in the way that it tells you this stuff is by showing it to you and not just telling it to you directly. And it's one of the things I love about this movie. And I think, like, you know, again, we'll, we'll address this point when we watch episode two and episode three. But, like, the prequels are, are, are one of the many things they're hammered for is their dialogue. And setting aside the next two movies for future discussions, I think the dialogue in this movie is actually really good. Um, it's, it's obviously, it's very sort of hammy and cheesy in some places. But it's Star Wars. It's fucking supposed to be hammy and cheesy. Like, sorry if you missed that. It's, like, literally what this is. Like, it's based on fucking Buck Rogers, guys. It's not supposed to be Shakespeare. Ah, oh, Governor Tarkin, I recognized your foul stench when I was brought on board. Yeah. You guys you guys forget that one? Yeah. It's like, don't be too proud of this technological terror you've constructed. The ability to destroy a planet is insignificant next to the power of the Force. That's not exactly to be or not to be. It's pretty fucking clunky. Or my favorite is in Episode 4, when Darth Vader senses Obi-Wan. It's like, I've not sensed a presence like this since. It's like, 
No writer would ever put the word since and since in the same sentence like that together. It's so bad aesthetically. It's so clunky aesthetically. But it's fine because it's a big, hokey, earnest, fun space opera movie. Fucking, like, it's supposed to, like, that's the tone it's going for. And I think in that tone, I really like the dialogue in this movie. I think in particular it's good at giving you space to interpret what is going on instead of it just telling shit to you. So it's like when, when you know, they have that scene after Obi-Wan and Qui-Gon meet the, the Jedi Council uh, and Obi-Wan is talking to Qui-Gon outside and says, it's like, Master, you can't go against the Jedi Council again. It's something of that they don't show, they don't like just like give you this big scene of telling you the history of Qui-Gon Jinn with the Jedi Council and going against things. It's a quick little scene between Obi-Wan and Qui-Gon that you could miss very easily like what they're talking about but they're doing that to establish that there is more there's more going on in the jedi council than just like the jedi is this model and they just follow this and that qui-gon wants to go off on his own and do his own thing and follow his own beliefs and that the jedi council is controlled by the same kind of bureaucracy that you're seeing in the senate that is that gives darth sidious his opening but that would also doom naboo to control by the trade federation if it went unchecked and so it's like it's it's doing all those things at the same time, and it's doing it through action, and it's doing it through like non non traditionally expository dialogue. Yeah, and this is also what I mean by some of the difference with like how Lucas does and doesn't direct actors. Well, is that I think that kind of dialogue, I agree. Um, and again, episodes two and three are a different beast, and we'll get there when we get there. Yeah. And and parts of episode two and three are different beasts unto themselves. Again, we'll get there when we get there. But in this film, I agree. I think George Lucas does have a good ear for this kind of pulp dialogue. Now, that kind of pulp dialogue does need a certain kind of execution. Yeah. And A New Hope, for instance, is really, really good at executing that. Like Carrie Fisher, Mark Hamill, Harrison Ford, Alec Guinness, all those guys... They're very, very attuned, I think, to what that dialogue needs. And so people just kind of miss what is actually on the page. Here, I think some actors are very, very attuned to it. I think, yeah. you know, Qui-Gon, Obi-Wan, a lot of those characters do it well. Jake Lloyd obviously doesn't. Yeah. Natalie Portman in a lot of scenes doesn't. And, and it sounds as clunky as it is without having, I think, that kind of energetic, artful spin on it that the actor is supposed to give. And I do think that ultimately goes down to the director. I think George Lucas, if you, it's a really interesting thing when you watch behind-the-scenes stuff with him. I think he is a tremendously introverted person. I think that's a very rare quality in a film director. Like, film directors sometimes are press-shy, but I think on a set they have to be extroverts, generally. I think George Lucas is very introverted. I think he's very intelligent, and I think he's passionate about what he does, but I think... A director like him with actors who really need kind of hands-on, not just technical direction. Like, I'm sure he's very good with the technical direction of blocking, staging, all that stuff he's clearly very good at. I think, you know, one of the things you need to direct a child, for instance, yeah. is you can't just tell a kid, here's how you inflect this line. You have to, like, make it, like, play for them or something. I don't think that's in George Lucas's repertoire. Yeah. And I don't think we need to damn him for that. Just recognize that, like... Different directors are different. Yeah. And also recognize that like there are a lot of child performances that are really fucking bad in the history of cinema. Like sure. most of them aren't great. And like honestly, when rewatching The Phantom Menace, it was like I kind of had the same response to it as it did to Jar Jar. It's like it doesn't work in a lot of places, but it's fine. I think it it, yeah. it fulfills its function. I, it's not elegant. But it's totally fucking fine. I, I do think there are significant stretches of the movie that could be elevated with a more naturalistic performance. Sure. But that's a different thing than just writing it all off, you yeah. know? But that's my only point, is that, like, you know, I think you can separate some of the writing from the dialogue. Like, 
you know, that line that comes out of Anakin of, are you an angel? And then that whole exchange, it's, it really lands like a thud in the movie as made. I can very easily imagine a version of that directed differently, acted differently, that doesn't. Because yeah. that is not that far off from a lot of dialogue in the original trilogy. Yeah, it's and it's also something of like like as I want to talk about Anakin, so let's just get into it. Of sure. that, I find like with the perspective I have now, both of like being older and then like the perspective of Star Wars in general. Like, while like obviously I do not think that Jake Lloyd turns in the most amazing child performance ever in this movie. I do find the characterization of Anakin really interesting in this. Movie. I agree. I think on the page he's very well written. Yeah, that I think, and there's something about that angel line of how you're introduced to him. Of I love the idea of that the way we are introduced to the guy who becomes Darth Vader, and that like I think like I think you are supposed to watch this movie basically understanding the, the basics of the original trilogy. I think like that sort sure. of like four, five, one, two, three, six order. One of the things that's good about that is that. I think it's important to have some sort of like understanding of when that kid walks through just like totally nonchalantly and it's this little slave boy that that's the guy who becomes Darth Vader. And so you're paying, so you have to pay attention to that kid to see like, well, what does that, like, how does that work? Like how, like, like Darth Vader was this little slave boy on Tatooine. Like how do you go from slave boy to guy who's basically ruling fucking the galaxy underneath the emperor and is the most feared badass dude in all the world. And there's something about the like the some of the vulnerability of Anakin I like that is in that like are you an angel line that if it was delivered a little bit better like I think what that line is supposed to tell you is that he's never seen someone who's fucking taken a bath before because he's a slave on Tatooine like 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 Padme is we don't know like if you have this is your first time watching the movie you don't know that she's the queen yet it's like she's the queen spoilers if somehow you're listening to this without having seen the fucking phantom yeah yeah but it's like she's the queen of naboo or at the very least like under the 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 suspicions of like of of what the movie is telling you so far she's at least a very high-ranking handmaiden in naboo it's like it's natalie portman she's an attractive young lady like it's fine like 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 that that perspective from that kid is that like, yeah, he's like seven years old. He's probably never seen anybody who like looks okay. Like he's surrounded by Wado, who's like the most disgusting fucking alien in the world. He's got like Sebulba. He's got all these little kids that are all dirty. There are very few other humanoids. Yeah. Like his mom is, is encrusted in sand at all times because she's a slave woman, you know? And that, it, that characterization I find really interesting of that like and that like sort of being your introduction to that character is this idea that like the reason why he latches one of the reasons why he latches onto Padme is one like later it becomes mommy issues but two it's that like he's just never seen anything like that before he's never met someone off world like that before that is not a gangster or a fucking criminal yeah I, I want to talk about the gap between the execution of Anakin in the film and the writing of him yeah. but sticking with the writing for a second it this struck me last night too. I really like how Lucas frames him knowing what will come because what he frames him as is like the story of the Phantom Menace is the setup for a bigger story where like this kid who is inordinately nice for his station in life who should have had all humanity drummed out of him but instead reacted to oppression by being the best version of himself he could be in this situation as a kid who is so generous and giving and nice The story in this movie is that that kid is plucked out of the scenario that made him good and has that beaten the fuck out of him by the world. That's what's to come. Because they rip him from his mother. And there is... It's one of the things that like... There are many things in the prequels that you can read as either plot hole 
or deliberate, the characters just aren't perfect. And one yeah. of those is, yes, if Qui-Gon Jinn wanted to take Anakin's mom off world, he could do it. Uh-huh. He could yeah. figure out a way to do it. At the very least, they could just walk her over to the ship and then Watto or someone would be like, oh, I lost my, I'll get a new slave. Like, that's what it would be. You know, it's like, yeah. oh, who took them? The Jedi? Okay, I'm not going to fuck with the Jedi. Like, he could do that and give her an apartment on Coruscant and Anakin doesn't have to see her every day, but he can have the peace of mind of my mom's okay. And they don't do that. They are terrible to yeah. this little kid. And I think that's a subtext of the film that is really, really important is that this super likable, super nice kid is fucked by this yeah. plot. And I think that's where the execution falls down most for me, is that what you needed out of young Anakin in this film, in execution, was a kid you really like. You needed, like, an actor who didn't have to necessarily be a great performance, but just a likable, naturalistic, open, young performance where you come away saying, you know, that seems like a great kid, and then you think that, oh, he's going to become Darth Vader, and it's supposed to hurt. Yeah. And, you know... I want to separate again. When we say Jake Lloyd, I'm not insulting the person. He was a fucking kid when he did this. It's not... On child actors, it's not on them. It's just not. That's the director, and I don't think George Lucas is good with kids in a directorial sense. I'm sure he's very nice to his own kids and good with kids in real life, but I just don't think on a set he knew what to do. Like, one of the things I realized kind of for the first time last night, uh, because I was watching the old DVD version of this, and I think the last couple times I've seen it was on Blu-ray, where I think they've evened this out in the mix a little bit. Almost every line Anakin has in this movie is dubbed, if you look closely and listen. Um, It's clearly most of his dialogue on set was unworkable. Um, You know, if you know what ADR sounds like, it's easy to tell. Now, ADR in and of itself is not a bad thing. It's a very common thing. Yeah, like, you wouldn't be able to watch any Spaghetti Western if you couldn't get over that hump, you know? (laughs) No, but usually, like, it's done for more of a technical reason, not because the performance on set didn't work. Like, if you watch the the behind-the-scenes documentary at the beginning, which is fascinating and candid and all that... um, you just see, like, there's even a moment where George Lucas, like, like uh, Jake Lloyd can't figure out how to pronounce Coruscant, and George Lucas just tells him it doesn't matter. And that's, I think, part of why so much of it is dubbed, is probably the dialogue didn't come out wrong. So there's this fundamental disconnect where it feels like he's reading his lines off a teleprompter in a studio somewhere else. The performance on set didn't work. What George Lucas probably should have done was replace the kid when it seemed it wasn't going to work. Maybe hire a coach or a secondary director who could help with that. Didn't happen, and I do think it comes out as a very stiff, weird, non-cohesive performance. But that doesn't mean the underlying meat of the story, and especially how other characters react to him, which in most movies with kids is the more important part anyway, um, especially American movies with kids. um, You know, that still shines through. Like, I really like the performance um, the actress who plays his mother gives. Yeah. I like that character. I like how Qui-Gon reacts to him. I like how Qui-Gon is seduced both by the religious midi-chlorian thing, which we'll get to, but also just that I think he thinks this is a good kid and a nice kid. And it's like, I can see greatness in him. And that leads him to do something very selfish, actually, I think, with Anakin. Yeah. The other thing about Anakin's characterization I really like that is something I don't think I ever quite keyed in. Because, again, like to reiterate from the beginning of this conversation, I haven't seen this movie since probably I was a freshman in high school. I don't even remember. Like, that's how long it's been is I have no idea when the last time I watched this movie was. Um, was like It's been so long since I watched this movie that I thought I had a DVD of it and we actually had a VHS, so I had to buy the movie. Because <laughs> it's like, oh, right, I remember watching this movie at home. It's because we had a VHS copy of it, nice. not a DVD copy of it. Um, 
But yeah, so, but anyways, one of the things I, I like about Anakin's characterization and, like, sort of, like, knowing where he goes, in particular, like, some of this is from having watched the Clone Wars animated series where the character's done really well, is that, is that I think you're right that, like, you are supposed to find him endearing, but I think he is also, he's supposed to be a little bit bratty because he's also, he's, like, the anti-Luke Skywalker in that he's not the everyman. He's not the every child. He's a child prodigy. Like, he's the only human who can be in, a, in the pod race races because he's the only one who has the reaction time to do it because of how in tune he is with the force he speaks like four or five fucking languages and he's like seven years old you know he's, he built c-3po he built c-3po like like he does all these things he's so clearly this child genius who is stuck as a slave in tatooine and then and then the other like key to it for me is that he has that line around when they're sitting around dinner when he well, one, he, he sort of manages to expose Qui-Gon Jinn as a Jedi Knight. I think he pegs Qui-Gon as a Jedi Knight almost immediately and then manages to sort of, like, get that, like, look at his lightsaber and confirm it. But I think he has those suspicions immediately, I think is how that's supposed to be scripted. And then around the dinner, he tells that story about how he had this dream of a Jedi Knight coming to the planet and freeing all the slaves. And to him, that's his idea of what the Jedi is. And I think that's like, for a lot of people, that's like the myth of the Jedi is this ultimate warrior with magic powers and a laser sword that can... It's kind of like what Luke talked about in The Last Jedi. Like, like you go to the planet and it's like... like you know, swashbuckling Robin Hood hero, like like I defeat Jabba the Hutt or whatever, and all the slaves are freed, and everyone gets candy, and it's perfect, and life is perfect because the Jedi have come here and through violence or whatever means have have enacted justice upon an unjust world, and that that's his idea of what a Jedi is, and so of course he fucking becomes Darth Vader because, and that's why all the the, the, yeah. the Jedi Council are afraid of him is because. When he gets access to that power, his idea of what you do with power is you use it to you to make good in the world. But the problem with that is that what your idea of what is good in the world doesn't always work out. And that the people who above you that tell you what is good might not actually be what's good, right? I think it's the thread of Attack of the Clones that is most thematically interesting, even if it's not always executed great. Yeah. And I'm curious to revisit it. But, like, that's exactly... He becomes an adult, and he gets super frustrated by not being able well, to... in Attack of the Clones, he becomes a teenager. I think that's an important way to look at that movie, is that he's a bratty fucking yes. teenager who was a boy genius who thinks that he can fix all the world's problems because he's a fucking... He's smarter than everybody else, but he can't do it. And so right. he resorts to, to, like, gruesome violence to try to, like, like, deal with his issues and try to, like, do what he think is, thinks is best, even though that's not what is best. And so then when that kid is faced with the Jedi Council scene, which I love that scene because of just how fucking cold and sterile the Jedi Council are to this kid that is this frightened little seven-year-old or whatever that they have plucked from his home, plucked from the only person who has ever shown him any love and affection before Qui-Gon Jinn, which is his mom, and give him a fucking, like, ESP test like it's the beginning of fucking Ghostbusters or something. (laughs) And you know, and, and it's like Samuel L. Jackson, like like that's fucking terrifying in and of itself. It's fucking Samuel L. Jackson giving you the ES, this ESP's test when you're a seven year old boy slave who's been pulled from his only person who's ever loved him, and you can't give them the answers that they want, and they very clearly do not like you, do not want you to be in the Jedi Order, and are afraid of you, despite what they say. Yoda saying about how you shouldn't feel fear, they 
fear Anakin Skywalker because they fear what he can do and they fear his potential. It's like, of course the kid's going to fucking turn into Darth Vader. And I love seeing those cracks. I love having that perspective. And that's not even like you don't need to see the other prequels to have that perspective. But just knowing he becomes Darth Vader and seeing this situation... Again, it's not the movie doesn't give you this like sort of hammy shot that just like tells you it. You just have to see the cracks in the scene and the cracks in the world that show you that's like these two things don't line up. Yoda is not fucking perfect. Despite what you might want to think about Yoda, he wasn't perfect in the original movies. He tells Luke the wrong things in the original movie, and he tells Anakin the wrong shit in this one because he doesn't have he's not all knowing and he's not perfect. It's actually, you know, you mentioned The Last Jedi a couple times talking about all that. It is another one of the impetuses for me talking about these movies is that I think The Last Jedi is way more thematically engaged with the prequels than has been discussed. Like, yeah, I agree. Like, it obviously has some very overt references to the prequels, um, more so than I think any other Disney Star Wars movie has or will for the foreseeable future. Um, and it has, I think, some aesthetic influences in that um, the casino planet very much yeah. looks like a prequel planet, which I like. But no, I think a lot of the ideas behind The Last Jedi feel like a director who didn't just dismiss the prequels when he saw them. Like, yeah. actually had this conversation with himself and wrote, you know, this is a world where those things happened and mattered. And that Yoda's whole scene, actually, I think in The Last Jedi... Yoda's scene in The Last Jedi does an awful lot to, I think, solidify Yoda's character in 1 through 6. And that it kind of helps to put a pin on all the rough things about Yoda. Yeah. That are subtext in the other movies and I think at some point had to become text. So, yeah, I agree with all that. Yeah, it's, it's like... The other thing people say, you know, for instance, when you get to the Jedi Council, is I think there's this inherent sense of disappointment in fandom in the prequels that the Jedi aren't what we wanted them to be. Like, they have the flashy lightsaber fights, but, like, oh, why are they so bureaucratic? And why is Samuel L. Jackson, you know, why is he on Xanax in this movie? You know, why isn't he being like, I'm had it with these motherfucking Sith in this motherfucking city? (laughs) No, he's not like that. Like, why are they so sterile and cold? It's like, that's the point. that's That's what it means to be a Jedi for these people. Yeah, they're not the heroes you think they are. They're not, they are part of a larger government structure that the text of Phantom Menace is telling us over and over again is in decline. Yeah. This is a democracy in decline. And they are a part of that democracy. And it is, I think, one of the interesting choices George Lucas makes of, again, I don't think he gave a fuck what people were going to think about this movie because this is, like, the least fan service movie ever. You know? Yeah. Again, the most overt, like... Obviously, the whole thing is a prequel, and it has to build in those things. But it's, you know, there's not, like, a line where Obi-Wan, you know, goes, like... That's a presence I haven't felt since, or yeah. anything like. Or I guess that's a Darth Vader line, but like you know, he doesn't do the Jawa call at some point, and you know, you don't you don't have a lot of those things. You don't have like Anakin Skywalker come on screen and John Luke Williams immediately does the Darth Vader sting or yeah. anything like that. Um, you know, the most overt things are some of the little digs in the pod races, which are I think fun little Easter yeah. eggs more than anything, and. Probably the most overt one that I do think is a mistake, but it's just a nitpick and I don't really care, is like C-3PO being built by Anakin. That always has felt like very convenient to me. Yeah, but but it's something I don't give a shit about. Like, whatever. No, and I actually really like 3PO's scene in this movie. I like Anthony Daniels in the role. I like the, like, naked 3PO design. And, you know, again, even if you hate that, that's a nitpick. That's not a structural or thematic flaw with the movie. Yeah. (laughs) You know? So, I forget where I was going with this. 
but yes, there is there is more cohesion to this film than I think at a lot of times I myself have given it credit for. Yeah, I just think it is something that if you go in with your preconceived notions of the original Star Wars trilogy, you have the, all those ideas of what you want these things to be and kind of in some ways like I think somehow what The Last Jedi did, even though I feel like I don't know how you could have watched the Star Wars movies and be shocked at what The Last Jedi does that much, but somehow we are having this conversation again. But it's like the prequels look at that stuff and tell you that like that stuff's not perfect and the Jedi are not what you just what you want them to be. Like it's one of the reasons why like I like the Qui-Gon Jinn and Obi-Wan Kenobi characters because they're contrasted with the Jedi Council. Because like Qui-Gon Jinn like seems like oh he's just a normal Jedi dude. This is just normal Jedi people. And he just seems like that until you meet the council and it's like this terrifying circle of 12 adults like interrogating a small child and and that's where you realize like oh yeah no like Qui-Gon Jinn is kind of quirky and he has this human warmth and compassion to him and he has that like living force like live in the moment not in the future philosophy that sort of guides him that both guides him and some in the wrong direction that he's unable to sort of like I think because he's totally living in the present he doesn't fully understand what he's putting onto Anakin because he can't see that in the future but then also him living in the present lets him be with people in like a normal way. And like it's particularly the little moments he has with Shmi, uh, Anakin's mom, like does so much for that character. Of, like you see like this human compassion and warmth between him and this like totally normal average slave woman. And it's the kind of thing that like, you know, the little brief glimpse you get at the council, you can't quite see any of them like that. Like Like this Yoda is not the Yoda that we knew. Because, of course, he's not. Like, this is the Yoda who's leading the fucking Jedi. He has to be, you know, very staid, very bureaucratic. He Like, what he says guides what the, the, the entire Jedi Order does. He's not fun, quirky, weird, cracking jokes Yoda. He's Yoda, like, at the top of the, 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 the bureaucratic chain of the Jedi Order. And that's, a re to me, that's always been a really interesting concept. And I've always loved those structural elements that this movie introduces that gives you space to have really interesting characters like a Qui-Gon and Obi-Wan precisely because they are contrasted with the, the like obviously sort of corrupted and decaying order that they are a part of. Yes. Speaking of Qui-Gon, speaking of the Jedi Order, yeah. speaking of what some might call the Jedi religion, let's talk about what I think is maybe the most misunderstood little moment in this entire trilogy. Yeah. Midi-chlorians, Sean, Go. Yeah, so, yeah, fucking the, just the midichlorians. It, the whole point of the midichlorians is just to, like, I think it, it does, to me, it does, like, the two things of that. One, it presents this sort of, like, more complicated version of the Force that, like, not everybody sort of agrees on. That, that you know, the Qui-Gon's constantly talking about the living Force and the ideas of the living Force as opposed to just the Force, the Force. Which is, you know, the movie doesn't go super deep into that, but I think you get ideas of that through lines of dialogue about the difference between Qui-Gon's perspective on this stuff and, and the rest of the Jedi Order. Mostly from, like, Obi-Wan being like, Qui-Gon, you gotta stop. Like, Yoda told me that I should be concerned about the future. And Qui-Gon's like, but you should be concerned about what's happening right now. It's like, okay. Yeah. Okay, Qui-Gon. Okay, Master. Um, but then, so, like, as a part of the, the complexity of the, the Jedi religion is you do have that concept of the midichlorians. One of the big things that people get so fucking wrong that is like, if you just watch the movie and pay attention to the dialogue, the movie clearly just says this. That the midichlorians don't create the force. Like, you don't have the force because you have midichlorians. Midichlorians are just a the biological conduit through which the force operates. And that's it. 
Like, like this is a highly technologically advanced society that also has a spiritual component. And it's like, imagine if in our world there was direct proof that God existed. Like, like just direct, in, irrefutable, like God exists, he performs miracles, these things happen. Well, then you have, there would be some sort of, and even like religious people would agree with this, like there's there would be a like physical scientific way to explain how those things happen because they would have to happen in the physical world there are a lot of physical way there are a lot of religious scientists who theorize about this all the time yes that is like that's and that's like not just like you know christianity it could be you know like lots of buddhist philosophies and and like you know talking about shaolin monks that obviously are a huge inspiration for the jedi as like a, a a religious order that practices their religion by practicing martial arts is that like there's you know the beliefs that you can channel your chi or your body energy and set things on fire or do things like that and perform superhuman feats and there would be some sort of scientific way to explain the spiritual and all the midichlorians are saying this is like this is the physical way through which the force happens there's irrefutable proof that the force exists but we don't say this is what the force is this is just one of the ways through which the Force operates. It's, there's there's two scenes in this movie yeah. where they talk about midi-chlorians, and people only ever talk about the first one, which yeah. is where he's talking to Shmi, the mother, yeah. and says he has a really high midi-chlorian count. And from that, dumb people extrapolate, oh, the Force is just a number, which Qui-Gon doesn't even say, but yeah. whatever. There's in fact, a s- the thing that, like, when you get to, when he, like, the second scene, yes. the, what that midichlorian count is kind of more saying is that that's Qui-Gon's theory for how Anakin even exists is that he was born through that, like, the force birthed Qui-Gon, or the birthed Anakin, right? The immaculate conception thing. You don't have to like that that's what they do in this movie. But, like, that's more to me what he's saying with the high midichlorian count is that that's his theory of how it happened is the force through midichlorians had him be born. So he has a like, huge midichlorian count. Yes, and the second midi-chlorian scene is the one that, for me, no one ever talks about, but I find really interesting, is Qui-Gon to Anakin trying to describe to a child what these midi-chlorians are. And I actually find the way he describes it a beautiful little piece of writing, because it's not, well, you have this many T-cells in your blood, and that, but yeah. no, that's not it. He's saying there is this living organism that we are in a symbiotic relationship with and through them we gain access to God. That's what he's saying. It's like we are at one with this other piece of the natural world around us and that that gift that they give us we share in you know the the union of all things that's a beautiful idea and that in no way diminishes what the force is in fact i think it puts a really lovely little spin on it in the way that sometimes when you hear again like religious oriented scientists talk about how they see god in science you don't even have to agree with it but you can say i find your point of view kind of an inspiring beautiful point of view yeah exactly it is something that I just think a lot of people like hear the word midichlorians, it turned into a meme and they shut down and just say like, oh, like it's like, you know, it's like, oh, that's your like giant ball power level or whatever. It's how many midichlorians you have and blah, 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 blah. And it ruins the force and it limits the force. And for me, it's like, no, it, it, the point is that it complicates the idea of the force. It makes the force is, it's not like it is both spiritual and it's scientific that it, it, it manifests in both those realms. And that's more interesting. And it's more complicated than you give it credit for. The General Thrawn trilogy has a fucking ferret that blocks the Force, and none of y'all are bitching about that online. Yeah, we don't like the Islarmy, the, the, the expanded universe, and like tr- Jedi trees, and yeah, like horses that pilot X-wing fighters, and all good stuff. 
Star Wars went some fucking places, my friend. The, the people, the things people choose to bitch about and not to bitch about sometimes baffle me. Yeah. But anyway, yes. No, I find that an interesting part of this film, an interesting part of Qui-Gon. And it's another thing where, you know, I think a lot of this film is George Lucas having lived with these ideas for a really long time. He did not make a film between... I mean, technically he didn't direct a film between A New Hope and this one. He did not, you know, directly make a film between Return of the Jedi and this. The 16 years. Yeah. He spent a lot of time developing technology and producing and, and changing the film industry in ways that I don't think we give him enough credit for. Um, and then you do feel like a lot of that pays off in this film where it, it feels... Like it or not, very heartfelt for me. It, it yeah. does feel like it comes from a very personal place for George Lucas. And it's why, like, I have a pretty easy time in this one, at least looking past some of the acting issues. Because it's all part of a piece. Like, George Lucas is an auteur. And some of his auteurhood is very good. And some of it doesn't work. But you don't get one without the other. Like, yeah. this is who he is. This is the filmmaker he is. And I do actually find it very consistent with the, the you know, the crazy kid who made A New Hope. Yeah, and, and kind of like what you said earlier in the conversation of that, it, it's one of the things to the movie's advantage is that it positions things in such a way that, like, a bad performance can't sink the movie because the movie is not about, like, actor performances. Like, obviously, like, the good ones are great and they add a lot to the movie and the bad ones you wish were better because they do detract some from the movie. But it's like, this isn't some sort of super in-depth artsy character study no. of a Jedi knight or, of, like, a samurai or something, you know? It's, it's, it's not that kind of movie. This isn't the movie that, like, you're sending to the fucking Academy Awards for, like, the best acting performances. It's the movie you're sending for, like, the special effects awards, right? Yes. And so, like... Although... Criminal that Ian McDiarmid never got a supporting actor nomination for this yeah, trilogy. He's fucking good. Let's talk about him for a second. Okay, yeah. And actually, I want to transition from this to like the political dimension. But Palpatine, Sidious in this movie, kind of a background presence, even though, and we should have this debate. In my view, and actually, this is what George Lucas has said. He's the character of the title, right? Yes, the Phantom yeah, Menace. Phantom Menace is, yeah, yeah is Darth he's, he's, yeah, because Darth Maul is exposed and destroyed. Like he's right. not a Phantom Menace. Yes, he's like a menace that you fucking cut in half and threw into the garbage yeah. pit. Darth Sidious is the Phantom Menace who's never exposed until the very end of the prequel trilogy. Yeah, I love that the title character of Episode One is someone who, in the text of this movie, even you know, in the text of the series, we already know this, but in the text of this one film, is never even revealed to be the villain. Yeah, the fan- and that is a huge thematic thing we'll get into. But yes, the Phantom Menace is this you know evil man who is manipulating behind the scenes all the actions we see. Uh, up to and including, you know, the... I don't know if it's a fan theory or if it's something in the books or the EU that he directly, you know, manipulated the Force to create Anakin Skywalker, yeah, which... I don't know if that's... If that was definitely part of the canon. I do not know if it's still part of the canon or Okay. Not. Well, whatever part of the yeah. canon it is, I actually find it a very interesting idea. Yeah. And I think you could make the argument that that would have been an interesting thing to include somewhere in Episode 3 as, like, the equivalent of the... I'm your father moment. Right. Because it's actually so thematically consistent with what this movie is about. Because what draws Qui-Gon Jinn and the other Jedi in, even if the other Jedi, they're reluctant, is this prophecy. And this promise of a prophecy that they probably know deep down is bullshit, but they believe in because it's part of their culture that they've built. Right? And so if Darth Sidious is the one who created Anakin Skywalker, it's kind of brilliant. To make this kid out of midi-chlorians, put him on some shit backwater planet, wait for events to go the right way, like manipulate things in the right way, that they will find this kid and do horrible things to him 
in their their horrible culture they've built yeah. until he can go in and break the kid. Is it completely Rube Goldbian and ridiculous? Yes. yes. Is it thematically consistent with who this villain is? Yes, actually. Yeah, I mean, he's a Sith Lord who's been alive for, like, hundreds of years or something in the background, manipulating things the whole time. Like, yeah. it's that is what his character is. But, yeah, I love that the real... Like, one of the criticisms of The Phantom Menace is, like, there's no clear discernible villain to the movie. And that's... like, yes, there is. There, well, there, it's, there's there is not a clear discernible villain... But there is precisely a not clear discernible villain, and that's what's interesting. Yes, that's what's interesting, is that it's a lot like the whole final battle. is this big war over what exactly trade, taxation, they don't really know. But that's the point. They get swept up in this giant conflict that no one can quite pinpoint the cause of. And meanwhile, there's this guy in the background who becomes Supreme Chancellor yeah. because of all of it. Yes, like that's my favorite part of the movie, is at the very end... Fucking Palpatine shows up and just in an offhand line, it's like congratulations for becoming Supreme Chancellor. It's like that, like, like I think it's for some people, it's because it's like the vocabulary is slightly different. But it would be in like the modern context at the end of some movie. So it's like, well, congratulations for becoming President of the United States of America. Like, holy fucking shit, this guy just became the head of the fucking republic that runs the entire goddamn galaxy yes. in the background. They just deposed their, like, supreme political authority and replaced him with this dude. Yes, who has these tentacles into... What I also love is that he's not just manipulating one side, because he's in his, like, emperor form in the hologram in yeah. many scenes. So he has full tentacles into this one separatist, what will become the separatist movement, the Trade Federation, and he's doing his evil things there. Although he is completely setting those guys up for defeat, which yeah. I think is really interesting. And then he's got all his tentacles over here into the Republic, into Padme and Naboo specifically, which is the planet he has orchestrated this in. I actually, and I don't think I ever got this as a kid. I think as an adult, like with an adult's film sensibilities watching this, I find that whole strand of the movie Endlessly fascinating and yeah. entertaining. And Ian McDermott, no one else could do it. He is so good at this. Yeah, it's, it is... Because, like, like, I haven't watched this movie, like, with that full perspective and, like, really looking for it. And when you watch every scene that he is in, just watch him with, a, like, you know, like a fucking hawk. And it's the best fucking performance. Because you can totally see it when you are looking for it. You can see it in those little moments where it lingers. And, like, there's, like... I think in particular there's just a couple times of like there's like one time when I think it's when uh, Padme's body double decides she's going to go back to Naboo which is not exactly what Palpatine has planned for and there's a quick like reverse shot of Palpatine looking surprised and it's like in another like like in, in a movie where he's not secretly the villain you wouldn't include this shot because he wouldn't be important enough to include this reaction shot but because he is secretly the villain you have that reaction shot it's like it's little things like that he's framed just slightly important enough that it gets on your nerves that he does that he doesn't do anything important that it doesn't like the movie never tells you like he did he, that he's secretly the villain and even when he becomes supreme chancellor they you only learn that through dialogue after the fact you don't see the process of him taking over the senate because it happens in the middle of you having a giant battle scene this dude manages to sort of take control of the entire government and it's just like it just kind of happens it's like if House of Cards had any subtlety or intelligence, this is the kind of story it would tell yeah. with its, well, okay, Kevin Spacey asterisk character, you know. Yeah. But yes, it's, uh, no, it's, it's a great element of this film and a truly unique one. And I think uh, when you talk about how these, you know, these movies are self-consciously prequels. 
But I think how they leverage their prequel status is so interesting. And one of those is obviously in this character in that the movie is telling you through that subtext with him that even if, you know, we know that, that the Republic will fall and there will be Darth Vader and all that, but just the bigger sense that is made visceral through all this, that all the characters we're watching, the world we're watching, the culture we're watching, it's all fucked. And there's no way they can stop it because the guy who's fucking them all, they don't even realize he's there. Yeah. You know, and that part is fascinating. And, you know, give me another movie of this scale, budget, popcorn size that does something quite like that. There's, right, yeah. there's plenty of like art. This, there's plenty of like artsy, you know, American and and foreign films that do that sort of thing in the background. But like that is an element straight out of like a '60s or '70s political thriller. The kind of you know generation of movies that George Lucas came up in as a director. And there are a lot of ties there from like I yeah. think '70s auteur filmmaking, which George Lucas is a part of, and he had a big part obviously in in changing that era into the blockbuster era with with the original Star Wars. But that that element of him is still very much there in the Phantom Menace. Yeah. 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 I just like, yeah. I just think Ian McDermott's performance is great. The way that character is framed is so perfect because it is also like like thinking back to like when I was a kid and first watched these movies, like I don't think like I kind of knew that because I had heard like someone had told me, "Oh, that's the guy he's going to become the emperor because it's the same actor." But like I don't think I fully believed it because it is there's something about him that is very persuasive in this movie in his sort of like background character role of just to, to, well, the couple of times he tells the sort of fake queen of Naboo like and this is what's going to happen like bureaucracy is going to take over and nothing's going to get done. Like, look, like watch he sort of like sets it up, like look Chancellor Valorum, he's talking to that guy now. It's over. Like, like this is over. The discussion is going to go nowhere. This is how this is how this ends. And and that's such a convincing argument for like a world like embroiled in bureaucracy is like yeah like it is powerless. Like yeah, we need somebody who can do something in the office. It's like somebody who's just going to sort of like go in there bullheadedly and try to like change everything and all that kind of bullshit. Someone who might you might say Sean. Make the Republic great again? Exactly, yes. Someone who's going to bring the Republic back to its former glory and build the walls so those damn Nimodians can't get in anymore. Um, you want to talk some politics here? Yes, let's talk some politics. All right. Keeping in mind that this feels more visceral than ever on a weekend where we are in a government shutdown uh-huh. because one party wants to kick out all the brown people. Yeah. Um, anyway, I want to go back to the opening crawl. Okay. Because I didn't get the quote exactly right, and it is so delicious I have to read it. Yeah. Turmoil has engulfed the Galactic Republic. The taxation of trade routes to outlying star systems is in dispute. (laughs) Hoping to resolve the matter with a blockade of deadly battleships, the Greedy Trade Federation has stopped all shipping to the small planet of Naboo. While the Congress of the Republic endlessly debates this alarming chain of events, the Supreme Chancellor has secretly dispatched two Jedi Knights, the Guardians of Peace and Justice in the Galaxy, to settle the conflict. On one hand, audacious and very funny to me in its audacity. On the other hand, especially when I think you consider some of the political things these movies, I think, genuinely are prescient about and had their finger on the pulse of, because these also came out right before 9-11 and then later in the midst of the Iraq War. Um, George Lucas is on to something in that opening crawl of, like, you know, our big Buck Rogers, Flash Gordon opening crawl that's always so exciting. You know, yeah. Civil War and these amazing things are going on. And no, it's the taxation is in dispute, and there's a blockade, and this small planet of Naboo, there's no shipping to it, and Congress is debating, and because Congress can't get anything done, we're sending these two Jedi Knights to see if they can negotiate. And from that chain of events, 
will lead to, in the text of The Phantom Menace and the other films, the evil mastermind behind the scenes gaining the power he needs to make the wide-sweeping social changes he wants to make that he know he could not make democratically. Yeah, that he, he manages to attain, like, extra special powers, dissolve the Republic, and turn it into an empire like fucking Caesar or something. Yeah. Now... None of this is a direct, necessarily, one-to-one with things we're experiencing today, with things we experienced in, like, the, the Bush administration when this, these movies were coming out, or, you know, this was tail end of the Clinton administration when this, this first film came out. And yet, I think, throughout my lifetime and my political awareness, there is an awful lot in the story of, I think, the evolution of American politics in the 2000s that I think The Phantom Menace and then the sequel certainly um, foretell and yeah. are on point about and are prescient about. Yeah, like, one of them being that idea of, like, like that these things are distant and boring. And, like, and it's, like, nobody really cares. So it's, like, there are these, like, big events happening, and we care because we're, like, you know, we're put into the middle of them, and we see what's actually going on. But once you go to that Senate, and it's this, again, it's, like, kind of like with the Jedi Council, because those two areas are kind of, like, juxtaposed with each other, is that, like, it's a big, sterile, blank cold fucking set and i love the way their their giant galactic senate looks because it's the right kind of bullshit where you can tell nothing gets done because there's a thousand fucking people in here floating on their stupid floating pods and it's all like this really dull silver color and just feels cold and excluding and and removed and it's just like an utterly uninviting like hostile place to be in like every second you're in that senate chamber you just want to be out of there but it is that sense of, like, all these issues they're talking about are far away and nobody really gives too much of a shit about them other than the people that are actually in the middle of it, which is basically what happens with most political issues it feels like today. Is like, and, like, we kind of, like, we'll argue about it for a little bit and then we'll, like, something else will happen and we'll move on to that and not really pay attention to what's happening. We're just sort of, like, hopping from controversy to controversy, not digging into it, and then ending up in really bad places because of it. Yes, and The Phantom Menace has three prime locations. There is the political stratosphere of Coruscant that we visit briefly near the end of the film in the third act. There is the planet of Naboo, which is this like, it's a part of the Republic. And it is, it's like this, you know, small subculture kind of, it's an outskirt thing, but it is still part of the Republic that is caught up in all this governmental bureaucratic squabbling. And it is the patsy for all these other issues. Yeah. And then, and I think this is really important, Tatooine is the other prong of this. And we don't just go to Tatooine because that's where Luke is from and that's where we want Anakin to be from and because it's a reference to the other films. We go to Tatooine because it is this universe's version of the third world. Right. It's that part of you know, the world that is outside of this seemingly benevolent government. You know, that when someone asks, I, I think, maybe it's Padme who asks, like, you know, that's barbaric. Why is there slavery yeah, here? And Qui- Qui-Gon has to go, or whoever has to say, well, the Republic just doesn't reach out here. There's yeah, nothing we can do. Uh, Anakin's mom has to yeah, tell yeah. her, like, like, yeah, I mean, it's yeah. we're, like, on the edges of the Republic. It doesn't have any influence here. And it's the kind of thing of, like, you know, you could forgive somebody today for thinking that, like, you know, if you're young, that slavery doesn't exist in the world because they heard that, you know, slavery was abolished in America in the Civil War. Or that slavery doesn't exist in America because it was abolished during the Civil War. It's like, there are, slavery takes a lot of different forms, and the world is a big place. It's like, yes. slavery happens both in America and, and overseas. And one of the important government... Because I think these movies actually paint a very complex picture of government and its relation to citizens. Yeah. I don't think it's anti-government. 
but I don't know. It's certainly not pro this kind of government, you yeah. know. But it does look at like the flaws of like if you have this government that can do so many good things, then why over here do you have this area that is, uh, to quote our president, such a shithole, you know? And and why can't we go over here and fix that? And the movie isn't necessarily saying the republic should just go in and fix Tatooine, but it is also talking about these limits of power yeah. and what happens and this distance between people living in this society and having no voice. And, and having these squalid, horrible lives. And over here, this world that is literally a world of skyscrapers where no one ever sees the ground. They are flying around the clouds in these big fucking skyscrapers. And they're talking about this all in the utter abstract. And it takes someone like a Qui-Gon Jinn who cares enough to go out into the fucking field once in a while to help the people of Naboo or to help one kid on Tatooine because that's all he can realistically do. Yeah. And I think all of this is part of a political tapestry where a lot of these ideas it's raising aren't even necessarily resolved in this film or in the other films. But I think they're really important realities that the film is thinking about that have to be there for a lot of the political allegories at play to have depth and meaning. Yeah. And it's the kind of stuff of that when I criticize the Disney Star Wars movies for the setting stuff. Like this is a lot of stuff I refer to of like what Phantom Menace does. And then I think the subsequent movies also of like establishing this really complicated but fascinating setting and doing it so elegantly that it feels like to me just like it just happens and you don't even realize that you're ingesting all this information. It's so interesting and it's also utterly different from the original trilogy. Like it's it's the complete opposite situation. Like where power lies is utterly different. How all that operates in your perspective is utterly different. Um, some of the other things I like about it is uh, the way it like handles the political sort of stratification with the Republic is that also on Naboo, there's this important distinction between you have the, the quote unquote people of Naboo, the humans that live on Naboo, but then you have the Gungans who are the native species of Naboo that are not part of the Republic yet. Like that's something that in episode two, you eventually get Jar Jar becomes a senator that represents the Gungans, but they are living on this planet and they have no representation in the Senate at all. Only the Naboo people do. And, like, there's an interesting distinction between that of the indigenous people that have their own government that, and that also, you know, like, Boss Nass says, like, oh, those Naboo people think they're so much smarter than us, even though we see, actually, the Gungans have, like, this incredibly advanced civilization that have, like, this, this these dope giant shields that block the blasts of the fucking Trade Federation and have, the, like, the plasma bombs or whatever that blow up the droids that, like, they are an army that can basically rival the, the droid army of the Trade Federation. It's... But they, are, they don't have representation through the Republic, but the Trade Federation of the Republic is directly affecting everything about their lives. Yes, and it's one of the interesting, I think, things the movie says about political actions and political actors is in the third act when the Gungans and the Naboo people come together. And it's this one kind of like shining spot of like positive progress going yeah. on in this world in that these two factions can put aside... It's the kind of thing that the Emperor probably couldn't foresee in, in that these two factions putting aside their differences, coming together and building a brighter future together. And it's like that's a kind of small grassroots thing that is really important in this world that ultimately does not happen nearly enough because all that's saved at the end is this one little backwater planet, yeah. you know? Um, and talking a bit about uh, Tatooine, actually, one of the other things I would say is interesting about Tatooine being this one connection between the original trilogy and the prequel trilogy, it's the one part of the world that does not change yeah. as a part of the events of the prequels. Tatooine is a shithole with slavery 
in the first movie. Yeah. And it's a shithole with slavery when Luke is there. Yes. And, like, nothing really changes there because the Emperor wants power and he wants to consolidate. He has no interest in these other parts of the world. You might even call him an isolationist. Yeah. But, yes, that is for a time. As a conversation maybe for episode two or three. Yeah. But, yeah. yes, I, I think there are a lot of really interesting political dimensions at play. And coming back to that idea of, you know, a rational but nefarious actor manipulating these events through the minutia of bureaucracy to start creating the political, ceding the political power to create the world he singularly wants to create by corrupting a democracy. That is a really interesting thing where George Lucas has clearly, I think, done his political homework yeah. in terms of how that happens historically. Uh, Again, certainly, look to Rome. It's, it's, it's a nice coincidence that I've been playing Assassin's Creed Origins, which obviously doesn't take place in Rome, but takes place at the same point in time when all that shit is happening in Rome and the skeezers like marching on Rome and, and, and Pompeii is leaving and shit like that. And it's like, there are historical parallels for this happening for people who maybe think that this could never happen to America... History is long, and it doesn't forget. No, and, and so when I say the Star Wars prequels are prescient, they are prescient not in that he looked at America and said, oh, this is all going to happen. He looked at history and wrote about a historical cycle that is really easy, not easy, but is very clear for those who are discerning to see in historical cycles, yeah. and wrote about it here, and it becomes universal, and... You know, maybe America is heading that way quicker than we all thought, but certainly there's a lot here that is very applicable to the world we have lived in, the world we live in, and the world we will continue to live in. Yes. And if you want to sort of like get your doomsday notebooks out and like create your checklist and be ready, you will know like shit is bad when there is a commerce enterprise or a corporation that has a senatorial representation, because that's one of the things that happens in this movie that's like low-key, super fucking terrifying, is that it's not the representatives from the like Neumoidian planet or something. It is the senator from the Trade Federation is how they are addressed. So once we get the senator from Google or the senator from Amazon, we fucking... Fucked. Because that idea is the most terrifying fucking shit I could imagine. That being a senator from a corporation. Yes, and, and you know, this movie paints in broad strokes like that in these moments. And yet, I think you could very well argue, we have that, it's just not that bald-faced about it. Exactly. But, but like, it's, we literally... it's going to, like, mark my fucking words, we are but, going to have a senator from Google one of these oh days. Oh, no, but forgive me for getting political for a second, but we do have a party in Congress that is a corporatist party. That is, yeah. it's, it's an elitist corporate party. And you certainly have those elements in the other party as well. But it, you know, it is very obvious in the Republican Party these days, uh, up to and including the tax bill that passed in 2017, which is almost entirely a tax cut for corporations, for the super wealthy. The entire point of that thing is to make life theoretically easier for, you know, not people, but businesses. Yeah. And they did that by taking 1.5 trillion dollars and funneling it almost entirely into corporations. It's this massive, it's actually more than 1.5 trillion, that's just the amount that will be added to the debt if you believe all the nonpartisan budget analyses. And you know, that's the thing that's being funneled into the corporations. Meanwhile, we are part of why we're in this shutdown is because Republicans at the same time were saying, well, this chip program for children's health insurance, you know, at worst would cost like 500 million a year. Where are we going to find the money for that? Yeah, And that kind of reality is one of the realities that I think The Phantom Menace is looking at, where you can have a Senate that is that distant from people, 
You have children suffering in this world, but they have a trade federation, and they're worried about that. And how yeah. do we appease the trade federation? Yeah. That rings very, very true. Yeah. I mean, you can also just look at stuff like the decision from the, the Citizen United decision and basically saying that corporations can be considered as citizens in specific instances and given the rights and powers of a citizen in specific instances. And yeah. it's like, how far does that have to go until you say, well, they need political representation if they're like this sort of political citizen body? And then you get a senator from Google, it's, and that's when I leave. It's a, it's a really interesting thing, because I think George Lucas is a much more political filmmaker than we think of him as. Yeah. And it makes sense. If you compare him to the other directors of the 70s, the first film school generation that he is a direct product of, your Martin Scorsese's and Francis Ford Coppola's and Steven Spielberg's and all those guys from that era, Robert Altman, all those yeah. people... All tremendously political filmmakers. The films of the 70s are tremendously political. Like this, this probably the greatest era in sound, I would say, of American film is 60s and 70s. And on all the films that are made there. And George Lucas kind of starts in that mode with something like THX. Yeah. 1138. Star Wars, the original trilogy, is, is not completely apolitical. But it's very sublimated and it's not a focus of those movies. Yeah. You know? And and so I think people think, well, that's who George Lucas is. It's the guy who did Star Wars, and that's all he is, and that's all Star Wars is. Well, he still had that in him. He's a person. And it does make sense that when he starts to broaden this universe and world build, I think a lot of those political instincts come back into the forefront. And I think, you know, it's one of the reasons why just completely writing off the prequels rather than critically engaging with them frustrates me because George Lucas is a really significant figure in modern American film history the biggest part of his canon as an actual auteur that we have are the Star Wars prequels. Yeah. Because he was less hands-on with, you know, the original trilogy than he was with this one. And I think if you want to understand where his head is at as a writer and a filmmaker, these are actually really... These are the best evidence we have of that. Yeah. But then also, like, if you want to sort of... Like, I definitely agree with you that in the original Star Wars movies, they are not sort of, like... Like in your face political about stuff, but if you want to dig into the politics of those movies yes. and the politics of George Lucas, like one, George Lucas is a total fucking hippie. Like he's a child of the sixties and the seventies, or like a child of like the fifties, but like grew up in the sixties and seventies. One of his films is American Graffiti. Exactly. So yeah. it's like he's a total fucking hippie. So it's like, who do you think the Empire in Star Wars is supposed to be? Spoiler alert: It's America. Like that's like it's not like you know those movies are made around the Vietnam War. Like. It's not fucking some distant, vague concept of an empire entirely. Like, where George Lucas gets those ideas is like, no, that is, like, America at the height of its sort of, like, like classical imperialism instead of, like, the modern, like, imperialism kind of bullshit we have now that's so distant. You know, that's, like, you know, engaged in the Cold War. America is this imperialist, colonialist power in a new mode. And and that's why, you know, like, the Empire is all these... You know, they all have British accents because it's an American movie. So they have to have British accents if they're going to be villains. But they're all white guys. And then, obviously, you know, the way that the film industry was for a big blockbuster... I don't know, like, all the consequences of this. But George Lucas didn't have a diverse cast of people, necessarily. But, like, there are no aliens on the side of the Empire. There are a lot of fucking aliens working for the Rebellion. Like, it would have been great if there was more sort of, like, normal... 
like actual human diversity there, like represented on screen, but it is represented in the classic sci-fi fantasy representation of how you represent minorities is you have them be aliens. It's like you can have a whole conversation about the implications of all that shit, but putting that conversation aside, the message there is supposed to be like the diverse people from diverse backgrounds are being oppressed by the big fucking empire that in that time period and and if that movie was made now would be America. Yes, so it's like that's the poli- that's that's the George Lucas politics, and I think suspicious of it. And it's the thing that uh, I think the Last Jedi does this well. I think the Force Awakens could have done it better, but it's the thing I like about the First Order, at least as an idea, if not always in its execution, is it does feel like a a, a modern extension of Star Wars politics and how it comments on the real world. Now, I think especially in a post-Trump, post-now Last Jedi world, I think Episode Nine, one of the best things it could do is to dig into that political side of things further. Yeah. Because I think there's a lot of good meat to what the First Order could be if you fleshed it out a little yes, more. Yes, the idea is fine. Yeah. It's just it never felt like the movies were interested in exploring it. And I think if George Lucas were, were more, you know, he's not involved with these at all, but I could see I could see him making actually a lot of the same choices with how the First Order is depicted. I think he would be better at the world building side. I, th- I think he'd just be interested in exploring it as opposed to it just being yeah. something that's off on the side. Yeah. Because I think it's clear about this like this movie and the prequels is that he's really interested in what is happening in this world. It's like one of the things that I love about these movies and and like one of the things that's harder for me to accept about the new Star Wars movies is that I like that like George Lucas is not a fan of Star Wars. He's a dude who made Star Wars and has a complicated relationship with Star Wars. And like there's something that is always going to be lost between the like someone who's sort of like the original part of something and someone who is a fan of that thing and trying to replicate it. This is like George Lucas does not, did not, and never tried to replicate anything about the original Star Wars because why would he want to? Like he already did it. What would be the point of doing it again? So he did something different. Yeah. And that's the thing I kind of like, I guess these prequel movies made me want. It's like, I want something different. I don't want someone ripping on yeah. like what they grew up with. I want to push new boundaries. And this movie is fucking... As something that is like prequel, sequel, whatever, but like the next entry into like the movie franchise that basically made modern American popular culture, they're fucking crazy. Yeah, no, I mean, let's talk about the production side of these for a second because it's really fascinating. Um, I think something people don't fully grasp about the Star Wars films is that other than A New Hope, they are independent films. And that's a really interesting, utterly unique for this scale of movie thing. Is that George Lucas had to go to Fox to finance A New Hope. Very small budget. Big budget movie for the time. Small for what that kind of movie is now, you know. Yeah. Um, And then for the next movies, he decided, you know, I have this company, Lucasfilm. I want to own my own stuff. I want to be able to make the sequels I want to make with this. Because this was also completely uncharted territory. The one successful sequel to that point was Godfather 2. And that's not exactly a model of how to make Star Wars 2. Right. You know? So he got enough financing and saved enough money from the success of A New Hope that he independently financed The Empire Strikes Back, rolled that into independently financing The Return of the Jedi. Fox was just the distributor for these movies. They had none of the rights beyond distribution. He owns these movies, and and now Disney owns them, which we will talk about, but because that's an interesting part of the story, too. You flash forward 16 years. In those 16 years, he has continued to build this company, Lucasfilm, which it's weird to call it independent, and at a certain point, no, it's not independent in the same sense as, like, 
it was once upon a time. Right. But it is still, it's, it's its own company. It's its own force in the industry. He built ILM out of that. He revolutionizes special effects. Nonlinear digital video editing is created yeah. at ILM and at Lucasfilm. And that's the way all movies are edited now. You know, that's a huge yeah. revolution. There's video <laughs> games obviously became a part of that with LucasArts. Pixar comes yeah. out of Lucasfilm and ILM. He, the Pixar computer was bankrolled and funded at ILM. And this is all George Lucas's personal company that he owns and operates that he's financing. So by the time you get to the 90s when he's ready to make the fan to Menace, this was a movie with about a $130 million budget, which very, very big at the time, obviously. Not like Titanic big, but still very big. Yeah. Um, and that's completely independently financed. Once again, he's not going to Fox and having them finance the movie. He can make whatever fucking Star Wars movie he wants. And I think a lot of people take that as evidence of, oh, he had too much freedom and it's bad. I take that as evidence of, this is the id of Star Wars. Yeah. You know, kind of the prequels are in many ways... You know, when people reject it, it's like, that's not real Star Wars. I hate that point of view because, like it or not, just on the numbers, this was for a long time 50% of Star Wars. And also, I think, in many ways, these three movies, because they were not just written and directed by George Lucas, but, you know, personally funded at a level he never had back in the 70s and 80s. These are his purest representation of he wanted this, what he wanted this thing to be. And that's a really interesting element. And so The Phantom Menace is not just this next narrative step that feels very audacious for Star Wars. What it does for the film industry in terms of pioneering digital elements, like no movie had integrated CGI this way. And while a lot of the CGI in The Phantom Menace looks pretty dated now, compare it to any other movie from 1999. Yeah. You know, like, even something like, and there were a lot of interesting things going on, like The Matrix, for instance. The Matrix doesn't have nearly as much CGI, and when it's there, it's way more obvious than it is in The Phantom Menace. The Phantom Menace has, you know, like, at the end, that full-scale battle between the droids and the Gungans. That's two years before Lord of the Rings. Yeah. You know, and, and, and we all think of Lord of the Rings as the thing that invented how to do these big CGI battles. No, Phantom Menace was doing that earlier, and... And the Lord of the Rings would not exist without the, the, the innovations made by the Phantom Menace two years earlier that proved a lot of this was doable. And, you know, in the other prequels, he was the first person to shoot uh, a mainstream film on digital stock, you know, on, on a digital camera with episode two. And the Phantom Menace, I believe, was the first movie commercially released digitally. There were four theaters that the Phantom Menace came out in digitally. And, you know, a lot of, and a lot of sound revolutions and stuff. Now, I do have very, very mixed feelings about a lot of the revolutions that I think these movies ushered in, particularly in how much they helped swing the industry to the side of digital, many times, I think, to the industry's huge detriment. But I still think it's really fascinating, and because of that, these are really important pieces of film history. Yeah, exactly. Like, it's the kind of movie that, like, we're getting to the point now, because it's been, like, once we get around to some film date, it'll be 19 years since this fucking movie came out. Um, we are getting to the point where it's like, yeah, like, you, like, film students should watch this movie because movies are shot digitally now. And it's like, you know, like, sets are augmented with CGI constantly, all the fucking time. And, and it's the kind of thing of when people just bitch about CGI, 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 CGI. Like, I understand some of that and maybe participate in some of that. But it's like, there should always be an understanding of, like, there's a huge amount of CGI elements to filmmaking today that people have no idea about. That, yeah, like, yeah. It's just constantly happening that you, you, have, you, you maybe think you can always tell when something's a CGI effect. I 100% fucking guarantee you cannot. Yes. And, and that's, like, something that, like, The Phantom Menace also does is that it is... This blend of of like sets that are part like actual set 
part CGI and characters that are part actual characters and some part of the- CGI are characters that are fully CGI. They're like 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 Jar Jar that's like constantly interacting throughout the whole movie. And you know, there are individual things you can nitpick, but look at like the vistas and establishing shots and the way they build the Naboo capital and all this stuff. You just couldn't have done it before 1999 without these effects, some of those images, and they're really powerful, interesting images. Yeah. Now, The Phantom Menace is my favorite of the three visually because I don't it has not gone fully overboard with it yet. It's, it's still shot on film, right? Still shot on 35. It still has uh, a lot of physical sets, which I think is a is a big boon. It's not all blue screen, you know. I, I do think the other movies, like I just wish sometimes they had more physical sets, you know. Yeah. But uh, and and that is one thing that did not stick around. Like there was this brief period in the mid 2000s with uh, episodes two, three movies like Sin City, some other films where like. There were a lot of filmmakers who were like, we don't need sets at all anymore. We'll just shoot everything on a blue... 300 was like that, yeah. the Zack Snyder movie. That has That is not a trend. People don't do that anymore. Obviously, there's a lot of blue screen augmentation. But clearly, we've swung back to like, yeah, it's nice to have a physical set. Yeah. you know. Well, but then you have like people making the fucking Jungle Book or something. And you can't even tell sure. what is a live action movie or a, a not live action movie anymore. Yes, but that's become more demarcated. You know, like, right, yeah. like there's a, that's, that's a certain kind of movie people are making. Yeah. Like... You know, I don't think the episode three ethos of we're not building anything has really fully yeah. won out. I guess more of my point is like it's it like one thing that's interesting about it is that we're still in the middle of it. It's yep. still fully yeah, yeah, developing. Yeah. Like we are in some ways we're weirdly still in like the infancy infancy, I feel like, of the digital film thing. Oh, we totally like, are, yeah. yeah. Um yeah, but it yes, the the Star Wars prequels are really important from that technical side of the production. But I do think Phantom Menace is probably the most successful to me at melding those technical achievements with solid, good storytelling and character work. Yeah. And I think it does that very impressively. And I guess getting back to my, my other point I was talking about, about this being an independent film, essentially, that, that Lucas was able to bankroll on his own without Fox calling the shots. That is one thing that is always going to separate Star Wars in the Lucas era from Star Wars in the future is that Star Wars is now run by Disney. Yeah, Disney is one of the biggest corporations in the world. They are their own trade federation. They have their own things they want to see. It's I'm a the senator from Disney. I'm yes. just waiting for it to happen. It's just a guy in a Mickey Mouse costume. Yeah, I object to whole. Yes. Anyway, um, yes, but uh, you know, it's a miracle that Ryan Johnson, I think, got away with some of the stuff he got away with in the Last Jedi in yeah. a Disney context. I wonder. If I don't, but I don't think we're ever going to get something as audacious as The Phantom Menace in a Disney context because you would never Disney, you know, a company like Disney would look at The Phantom Menace and have a fucking heart attack. Yeah, at that, like this is this isn't the Star Wars sequel you promised us, you know. And I know a lot of you will say, "Good, this isn't what I want," that sort of thing. But the level of imagination is something I want, and I hope we can agree is something that's good. Whether or not the particulars of this imagination is what you wanted. Yeah. And, you know, maybe people don't want that kind of imagination tied to Star Wars. The box office certainly bears that out at the moment. But I don't know. It's yeah, For me, like, you know, I've been well on record of this is that it bums me the fuck out. Of like, I don't... I like, And, and there's also a part of me that with, like, Disney that doesn't make sense of, like... Like, I do not think that the motivation for, like, introducing all this new stuff for George Lucas was, like, merchandising or anything like that. But there was a benefit oh, yeah, from yeah, a yeah. corporate point of view of like if you make something that's not an X-wing, you get to sell you get to sell your classic X-wing figure and put out new classic X-wing figures, and you get to sell your cool fucking Naboo shit 
And it's like you can like sell a Stormtrooper action figure and a Destroyer droid action figure. You know, it's like you can have your Anakin Skywalker lightsaber toy and your prequel Qui-Gon Jinn lightsaber toy and your prequel Obi-Wan lightsaber toy. And he lo- Obi-Wan loses his lightsaber in this movie, so he needs to get a new one. So you can get the new Obi-Wan lightsaber toy. It's like new designs, new worlds, new ships, new characters, new concepts, new world, like new everything to me is both seems like it should be very lucrative from a business point of view on like you know in that sort of like 80s-esque like transformers way of, of making all the toys and making all that shit but it's also for me as a star wars fan what i want from new star wars is new like underlying it's, star wars it's actually people have been doing analyses of this that i've found very interesting that actually um as much as you think of disney as the marketing you know genius that they um, you know, man, they're they're very good at the um, the merchandising side of these things. Uh, the number of new toys released for the new sequel films is much lower than the heyday of the prequel era and what was coming out. And when you think about it, George Lucas, I I do think a really interesting filmmaker, very smart filmmaker, also an incredibly savvy businessman. Oh God, yeah, and a merchandising genius. And it is interesting to me that for all of, of the Disneyfication of Star Wars now, they are not, I think, doing a tenth of the merchandising, like really taking advantage of that opportunity that uh, Lucas did with the prequels. Like, I remember the merchandising of the prequels very well because oh, that yeah. was my childhood. I had so many lightsaber toys. I had so many, like, I had uh, a version of Qui-Gon's communicator that you would click different buttons and it has different lines from the movie. And so there are lines like Jar Jar going, you know, Gungans no like them outsiders that I have heard a million times because it was on this little toy I had and so there were all these toys but there was also like the video game side of things was mm-hmm. so big and no franchise ever leveraged it, its its weight into video games as much as Star Wars did in this era and like it, it puts to shame that idea of like video game movies can't be good or lucrative yeah. Star Wars proved it over and over through this era and now we just ignore it which is bizarre but yeah like these movies were this huge merchandising opportunity that George Lucas was really, really good at capitalizing on, and his company was very good at capitalizing on. And it's kind of funny to me that from what I'm seeing with the new Disney films, Disney should be capitalizing on it in a similar way, and they're not. And that's yeah. we're like they feel like it feels like what they think the right path to do is to inundate us with more films, like get a film out each year. I think Lucas had the right idea in that all right, a film every three years. But in the middle, I'm going to milk these fuckers dry. Yeah. And it's like, and there's like a weird part of me that's like, like, I I like the version that gives me all the new shit too. Like, and isn't just like movies with all the old shit in it. Because it's like what Lucas did was by blowing the doors off of Star Wars and the hinges off of Star Wars was like, that's what allows Knights of the Old Republic to be made. Which like, I'm on record as being my favorite Star Wars thing. Because it's like... It gets to be new and different and show you different things and different designs. And it's like a bunch of creative people that are given like the keys to the castle, basically. Just says like, go fucking play and have fun. That's the other thing. Lucas was this, in one way, very controlling auteur. He was also incredibly open and liberal with his property. And that he allowed anyone to write a Star Wars book, write a Star Wars game, whatever. And Disney doesn't do that at all. They're so tight-lipped. And that's probably to their own detriment, I think. Yeah. And then you got, and then like this year also, obviously like allowed both the um, Guinea Tartakovsky Star Wars Clone Wars cartoon which happened in between episode 2 and episode 3 and then the post episode 3 3D animated Clone Wars cartoons that are also both of those like two of my favorite Star Wars things that that get to expand and fill in things in the prequel but also go and show you new things and are not mired by the same old shit all the time it's like 
I, I, this is the thing about this movie, particularly like Phantom Menace, because it's the one that introduces all of these ideas to you, is that it has this like just incredibly rich creative imagination to it that like again no matter what your sort of like personal issues with the specific storytelling and characters or whatever i think it is impossible not to admire the like technical like work that is going on here the and the like imagination that is occurring in the design work and the production design and the world building like those things to me have to be un- unimpeachable that's yeah. like you have to be able to accept that those things are incredibly remarkable, even if you don't like the movie. Yeah, if we make no other point in all of this, and I think we've gone kind of far afield with lots of different things here, like the merchandising, but I do think it's an important part of the equation. Yeah. If we make no other point, though, this is Star Wars. Yes. And yeah. I, I feel like it's weird to have to say that, but we live in this weird era where one way the prequels were... Did or were tone deaf, or I would say didn't have their finger on the pulse, is that George Lucas did not anticipate the nostalgia boon that would take over our pop culture in the late 2000s into the 2010s. Yeah, where all we want is nostalgia, and we want our mostly from the 80s. I mean, that's but, what happens when you have an entire generation who's like pop cultural touchstone from when they were kids. I'm talking about the 80s, are cartoons that were made to sell you toys. It's like, yes. like fucking Transformers and G.I. Joe killed culture. Like, they just fucking put a bullet in it. Yes. But, you know, while these were new Star Wars movies and Star Wars was nostalgic, the prequels were not interested in nostalgic fan service. Yeah. And that's what I think, in this, you know, cultural moment... It seems like the prevailing conventional wisdom around Star Wars is that Star Wars is that thing from the 70s and 80s. The prequels were a weird aberration that don't count and no one likes them. And now Disney is giving us more Star Wars, which is narrowly defined as the movies from the 70s and 80s. And the things people don't like about The Last Jedi are generally where it breaks from that very, very narrow definition. Yeah. Now, I do not think this cultural moment will last forever. I certainly have not. And I don't think that in 50 years, when people are writing the history of Star Wars in all of these periods, that will be the one way we look at them. In part because the kids growing up now, like us, who will be controlling that conversation, don't have that view of the prequels. And shouldn't have that view of the prequels, because it's a dumb view to have if you had them as a kid. Yeah. Frankly, you know, because, let's be honest, we all loved them as kids. Yeah, you know? like that, like it's, you had that, the awkward adolescent period where it's like, I want to impress people by saying I don't like the prequels. Yes. And then you watch them as an adult, it's like, what the fuck is wrong with people? This movie's good. Yeah, it, it was very performative for a time. But, yeah, I, I think, you know, culture and history moves in cycles the prequel trilogy, I think, were maybe the right movies at the wrong time for the audience, for parts of the audience. Yeah. Not the whole audience, but parts of the audience that was digesting them. And now we are so firmly entrenched in this moment of unabashed nostalgia. Sometimes with, with things that come out of it and do a really good in-the-moment critique, like Twin Peaks The Return. Yeah. Which exists financially only because of the nostalgia boon. But David Lynch is not interested in nostalgia that way. Again, kind of like with the prequels, George Lucas, like, why would David Lynch want to do what he already did? Yes. Of course he's going to do something new and crazy and awesome. Yes. And if, if, if any other podcast compares Twin Peaks The Return to Star Wars prequels, let us know. I think we're probably the only ones. <laughs> yeah. But yes, um, that's, that's one of the things that I think is really interesting about situating these movies in their historical moment and comparing them to our historical moment now. 
Um, just because the conventional wisdom says one thing about these movies does not mean you need to blindly accept that. And I would, if, if we get no other point out of this conversation, I would just urge you to give it another watch as clean from the years of memes and bullshit as you can. Don't necessarily expect that you have to like it. You don't have to. Yeah. But I think you'll find things in this film and in the next two as we watch them that are really interesting if you try to divorce yourself from this moment and try to look bigger than just how we view pop culture right now. Yeah, like you have to watch it again with an open mind and an open heart because I yes. think it's like if you go into it with like this fucking ironic, cynical, sarcastic bullshit attitude that so many people have about pop culture these days, of course you're going to fucking hate it because how because you, you're going to hate everything because that's the with that attitude all you can do is hate. It's like fucking throw that shit aside, watch the fucking movie and enjoy it because yes. it's a good movie. Two points to make before we're done. We at least for yeah, me. we are not know. done. Okay. I have more stuff I want to say. You go. We didn't talk about the lightsaber fight. Yeah, I was going to bring that up as well. Yeah. Okay. Darth Maul's a great character. We mentioned that. Qui Gon, Obi Wan, all great characters. That lightsaber fight. Uh-huh. It's it's an understatement to say it's the best Star Wars lightsaber fight. Like obviously they're never yeah. going to surpass it. I think it's fucking perfect and amazing. But it goes beyond that. I just think it's one of the best choreographed action sequences I've ever seen. And I've seen that part a million fucking times. And yet I was watching it last night, jaw agape, once again, at how this thing was put together. There's a shot after Qui-Gon is stabbed and Obi-Wan gets through the barrier and he resumes the fight with Darth Maul. Where it's like a a medium... Well, I guess it's a far off shot because their full bodies are in the frame. But where like the camera is situated like in the middle of the pit, there in the foreground... And it's Obi-Wan and Darth Maul fighting from, like, we're viewing them from the side. Yeah. And it's basically shot like a Gene Kelly dance number from Singing in the Rain, where it's, you have the full body, you can see the full choreography, and they're not cheating on any, they're cheating on any of it. These are stunt people, or maybe actual Ewan McGregor, because he rehearsed a lot, yeah. doing the actual moves. And it basically looks like, like, uh, like dance or really good martial arts movies, which there's not much of a difference between those, because yeah. the fundamentals for shooting martial arts and shooting dance are the same. And there's so much of that before you get to the amazing John Williams music and the amazing performance Ray Park gives physically as Darth Maul and the amazing set design and production design of the rooms they're fighting in. Yeah, it's something of, I've said this before, and I will always stand by this, of that, you know, Hong Kong kung fu movies have the best fight scenes between, like, individual characters that are not, like, you know, big chase scenes or gunfight scenes that are, like, big action spectacles, the way that, like, you know, the droid Gungan battle scene is in this movie but if you're talking about like one-on-one characters like like fighting or like a two-one like that sort of small scale personal combat hong kong action movies are where you need to go because they fucking figured that shit out in like the 60s and have only gotten better at it like if you've not watched a, mon- a modern donnie yen movie like eat mon like fucking go watch eat mon and have your mind be blown by action sequences because they're incredible and and the the prequel lightsaber scenes feel 100% inspired by those kinds of Hong Kong martial arts movies. Like, down to casting your main villain as... Or casting your stunt director, or coordinator, Ray Park, as your fucking main villain who has to do all the cool kung fu shit because he's actually, like, an incredibly talented martial artist. So it's like, 
And you design, you know, they designed fighting styles for all the different Jedi. For, like, Qui-Gon and Obi-Wan and Darth Maul all have fighting styles that were designed. They created, a, like, martial arts styles for the Jedi, thinking about, well, if you had sort of, like, slight precognitive powers, if you had a weapon like the lightsaber that could do these things, how would these characters fight? There was so much thought that went in behind the scenes to how would these characters fight and how would you stage it. And that's what comes through in the fight scene is that one it's just like really exciting and well edited and all that stuff is great but it's also there's like a tremendous amount of thought and character put into the choreography and the fight scene progresses like a story that you have Qui-Gon and Obi-Wan start fighting uh, Darth Maul then as it progresses uh, Obi-Wan falls behind and it's Qui-Gon and Darth Maul and then you have that brilliant moment where they're all separated behind the big red screens and and Obi-Wan is frightened, Qui-Gon is sitting and meditating patiently, and then Darth Maul's just pacing back and forth like a tiger. And and then then I love that like Obi-Wan ignites his lightsaber a second before the things come back, like open up, and then is running towards them. But Qui-Gon and Darth Maul have already started fighting. Obi-Wan is cut off again and then has to watch as Qui-Gon fights Darth Maul one-on-one. -on -one. And if you pay really close attention to what's happening in that fight, you can see... That like it's full of feints and then kind of like backing off and analyzing one another before they go again. It's not just sort of like like swinging and hacking and swinging and hacking. I think a lot way a lot of American sword fight scenes are. There's thought into how they're like positioning and looking at each other. It's really like it almost kind of reminded me of like when I was playing the Dragon Ball Fighters beta and like thinking about in fighting games. It's kind of the same thing of like you're sort of stepping forward and trying to see an opening, get a sense of like how is this character like how are they playing this character what i'm doing and the kind of like jerky movement before you go into it then of course darth maul kills qui-gon and then you get that that little bit you're talking about where then obi-wan has like is enraged the doors open up again and then obi-wan comes at it with like this really aggressive fight style and it's like that like five second shot or whatever it is is one of the most sort of impressively choreographed shit i've seen in any ac american action movie particularly where obi-wan like jumps in the middle blocks from behind and then blocks forward really quickly as Darth Maul sort of like does this spin move. Like it's just so fucking smartly choreographed and then shows that progression of the story of the fight scene through the behavior of the characters and the way that they fight. It's incredible. It's like an out-of-body sequence to watch. The way like Darth Maul's dual-sided lightsaber isn't yeah. just the coolest fucking lightsaber. It also allows him to work it like a bow staff in a yeah. Kung Fu movie or something. So a totally different fight style going on. You know, and I agree with everything you're saying. Like, the depth of character revealed in the choreography and how much those characters are thinking, are communicating non-verbally through all of this is incredible. You know, and I think the lightsaber fights in the, in the next two prequels are also generally very, very well done. Yeah. I don't think they rise to this level again. I, I basically agree. I mean, we'll have to revisit this conversation, obviously, yes. when you watch this. But my preliminary analysis would, would agree with that. Yes, and I, I also think the other thing that elevates all this is the way this fight is intercut with the entire climax. I think yeah. the climax of Phantom Menace is fucking brilliant. Yeah, it's amazing. Yeah, like all the different... Because you have basically four different strands. You have the yeah. Gungans fighting the droids. You have the Queen and, like the captain and everyone sort of like trying to retake the throne room and then of course you have Anakin and everyone else attacking the Trade Federation ship and it's cutting between all four of those bits at the same time. It's a masterful piece of editing and the other element we haven't talked about is John Williams. Yeah. Um, John Williams came back 16 years off Star Wars. He was hungry for this. 
He wrote a masterful score, only frankly got better from here for the prequels, and not that he's ever dropped the ball with Star Wars or anything, because the, the new movies have great John Williams scores as well, but you can just feel how energized he is for Star Wars all the time when he's writing this music. And one of the things I love about his score mirrors the movie itself. There's a couple little Star Wars themes repeated from the original movies, and the style is similar, obviously. The atmosphere is similar. It's an all-new score. Yeah. There's very little of him bringing back themes from the other movies. You know, He does not do like a big Darth Vader you know, Imperial March sting in this one at an obvious moment. He's making a new musical universe while George Lucas and company are making a new visual universe. And it's a, it's a huge accomplishment. This score is, is a masterpiece. Yeah. And of, of course, obviously, the Duel of the Fates song for the last, last oh, scene. Because like, it was when you were like describing like the beginning of the end of that fight. And I was just thinking of like when Obi-Wan sees... Qui-Gon get killed and it's that ba da ba ba and like it rises up and Obi-Wan screams no like that's so much of like the sound design and the music in that moment just create it you know yes yeah and again I think uh, Duel of the Fates is very possibly my favorite piece of Star Wars music I love it so fucking much I think it's a brilliant brilliant piece but as overall scores, I think episode two and three are maybe even better. Yeah, episode three particularly. Yeah. And, you know, that just speaks to John Williams is very good at building off what he's written. And it, it gets better from here musically. Um, anything else to say about The Phantom Menace for this conversation? A couple of things I want to point out. One of like, this is like more of a trivial thing, but I wanted to say it earlier and forgotten. So I want to say it now. I love the weird nonverbal relationship that uh, Mace Windu and Yoda have in these movies. I like you get like, cause you get like the one conversation they have at the end of the movie about the Sith. I love the way that that, I think Sam, I like, I get people saying like, Oh, it's like Samuel Jackson's on like fucking antidepressants or something. In these movies like these are on depressants in these movies. It's like, but I like, I really like him in these movies. There's something about like, you can tell that he loves being in these, that he wanted to be in these movies. He loves Star Wars. He's playing a proper fucking Jedi character. And I think he gives the right amount of gravitas to, after Yoda says, like, two there are, master and apprentice. He says, but which one, which one was this, the master or the apprentice? Like, he gives a lot of gravitas to that. I just love the weird, like, the looks that Mace Windu and Yoda give each other in this movie when, like, they're analyzing Anakin and shit. Are just perfect. Like you just have to, you just have to watch those scenes and really pay attention to Samuel Jackson because it's fucking really good. It's funny. It's good. Um, also, um, thinking about like some of the technical stuff in like John Williams and that lightsaber fight scene, Ben Burtt's sound design. Oh god, course. it's so good. Because it's like because the other part, like the magic secret sauce of the lightsaber fight, the every lightsaber fight scene that makes it like one of the best action scenes ever is just the fucking lightsaber sound effects are so perfect and the best idea anybody ever had in Star Wars was what if we made a lightsaber that made even more of the lightsaber sound effect because there's two lightsabers in this one lightsaber and you can twirl it around and it goes I want to talk about that for a second because I was I was not watching this on the Blu-ray because I don't love the Blu-ray version of this movie Um, I'm not a fan of the digital replacement Yoda was that the version on the uh, original yeah, song? Yeah, that's the only version okay. I could get. But yeah, I um, think it looks fine. It looks fine. It's it's. I actually also watched today on my on my on YouTube um, a, a comparison of the digital Yoda with the puppet. It's very revisionist. He moves very differently. He looks. He emotes differently. And I my biggest issue is just that I think the digital one is not at all in sync with Frank Oz's performance because Frank Oz did this the way he did it in the original trilogy, where he's on set doing the voice. 
and it's really in sync in the original film. And it's not the best puppet in original Phantom Menace, but I think the digital one just... Because it doesn't even really look like Digital Yoda from the other prequels, because it was done in 2011, six years after Revenge of the Sith. But whatever. Um, My point being... So I was watching the original DVD version, and that has... uh, so, So it's not like lossless modern audio. Still... One of the best sound mixes I have ever heard for any film out of my sound system. It's just jaw-dropping. The sound design in the prequels in particular was Ben Burt at the height of his powers. He also co-edited the prequels. I right. forgot that. Yeah. He has an editorial credit. Um, and he edited most of like the action sequences. So he's very much... Uh, uh, an artistic voice of these movies. Yes. Also, like, with the sound design and the editing stuff, the pod race scene is obviously the fucking sound effects in that pod race scene. They're just great. like They just, like, made video game sound effects for the next 50 years. <laughs> Basically, it's like, this is what space cars sound yeah. like. Like, I run do, with it. I do find that I like all this stuff around the pod race more than the pod race itself. I think it's way too long and is kind of a drag just in terms of how it's paced. Um, and actually part of that is that the theatrical cut of The Phantom Menace has never been released on DVD or Blu-ray. Um, it was on VHS and it was on a Japanese Laserdisc. The DVD cut that they've saved ever since, it would be the version you saw digitally, like, um, it, they added three or four minutes, almost all of it's in the pod race, they added, like, so much extra pod race, and I do wish one day I could see the original version, because I just remember in theaters, it was paced better, it, it lags in the second lap. Um, but I still, it is a cool scene, and as you say, that is the birth of all modern video game sound design. Yeah, there's just like, yes. it's just, it's perfect. It's I like, think of the, perfect. uh, Destiny Sparrows now when I watch yeah, it. Yeah, it is definitely, it's, you know, it's everywhere. It's everywhere. Yeah. It's so good. And then what else were you going to say? Um, the last point I wanted to make was this was something, um, I, after I watched the movie, like, I was, I kind of expected that I was going to like it more than I sort of like remembered, but I wasn't expecting to like it as much as I did. Um, so then after, and then I, when I finished watching it, it was there was like thirty minutes until you were going to get over here. So I very quickly looked online. I was like, just like, just like sort of like looking stuff up. And there's this like myth that people like to, to say of that like that, like nobody ever liked the prequels, that they were always bad, and that like you know that's always been what it is. And then I found out. That Roger Ebert gave it three and a half stars out of four. Like, he gave it a really glowing review. I just want to read the first paragraph of his review, because I think it's fucking amazing. It's so on the nose. If it were the first Star Wars movie, The Phantom Menace would be hailed as a visionary breakthrough. But this is the fourth movie of the famous series, and we think we know the territory. Many of the early reviews have been blasé, paying lip service to the visuals and wondering why the characters aren't better developed. How quickly do we grow accustomed to wonders? I am reminded of the Isaac Asimov story Nightfall about the planet where the stars were visible only once in a thousand years. So awesome was the sight that it drove men mad. We who can see the stars every night glance up casually at the cosmos and then quickly down again searching for a Dairy Queen. I think he's so... God, he was a genius! Yeah, he so captures, I think, properly the, like, what the fuck movie did you guys watch? Like, did you not watch the movie where they go to the fucking underground amazing city populated by the amphibian aliens, and then they go on a trip and, like, the giant fish is eaten by a giant underwater Godzilla monster? Like, what movie did you guys fucking watch? This movie is a visual splendor. It's like anybody, like, I like highly recommend reading the full review because oh, it's yeah. really it, interesting. Roger, I mean, that's amazing because he's basically 20 years ahead. It, it took us 20 years to get to where he was on day one. Like, yeah. it's, he was so smart. And yes, I, that's a point I was thinking the other day too, which is that if The Phantom Menace came out and there were no other Star Wars movies, I think it would be a, uh, at least a cult classic. 
I, it would know? be like one of the most revolutionary movies ever. Like, like the, yeah. if you had no, absolutely zero basis for the world building, and this movie came out, and that was like the only thing you ever were introduced, and like you didn't realize Star Wars was everything before. I think it would blow your fucking mind how fully realized and like revolutionary and interesting the concepts of the world building are. Yes, and you know who did that happened for? Children! Yeah. There is a whole generation of kids younger than us, because we yeah. were just over the cusp enough that we had internalized the original trilogy, even though we still loved the prequels. But there were a lot of people for whom this was the entry point in Star Wars, and maybe they went back and watched the old ones, but they were there for the prequels, because I think if you were a kid seeing this movie, the way a child's imagination works, this movie is wired the fuck into that. Yeah. To such an amazing degree that when people say the patronizing thing about like, oh, I showed my kids Star Wars The Phantom Menace and it's their favorite now and I've failed as a parent. Fuck you. Fuck you and, and stop showing your kids movies. You're really shitty at it if yeah. that's your viewpoint. If you can't understand why a kid would look at this movie and go, wow, my mind is blown, then I feel kind of bad for you because your, your, your viewpoint isn't open enough to, to, to take that in because yeah. it's a wonderful thing to be able to look at this movie and, and see that grandeur and splendor. Yeah, and like how you know you failed as a parent is if you show your young child the Phantom Menace and you haven't already bought them a lightsaber toy. Like that's when you fucked up because you are you have no idea the door you have just opened up for them. Lightsaber toys were the best toys. Yes, yeah, that Darth Maul one was very good. Yes, yeah, it's a good. It's like lightsaber designs, very good. Very good. The the lightsaber designs in this movie, these movies were on point. All right. Well, Sean, I think our first Star Wars discussion went swimmingly. Yes. Yes, this has been fun to do. Yes. I'm I'm curious to watch the second one because again, I it's been a very long time I'm since v- I've seen episode 2. Episode 2 is always the one I feel most conflicted about. I'm very excited though because even uh, no matter what, I know it's going to be a good discussion. Yes. Here, yeah. So, I'm excited for it. I'm 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 already preparing mentally my notes in defense of Warrior Yoda. I know we've had this conversation, had this conversation before, before. It's okay. But it's like, we're going to have to have it again, because people don't know what the fuck they're talking about when they're talking about Yoda. You swore, you swayed me last time we talked about this, years ago. Yeah. So I'm on your side, and I'm ready to help you make this argument. But yes, um, we'll be back next week, probably talking Digimon, Dragon Ball Fighters. We're not going to get back to Star Wars right away, although... I'm pumped. I could I could go watch episode two right now. Yeah, but we'll get back to it eventually. We've got a lot to talk about. We're going to have another Doctor Who bonus next month. We got all sorts of things coming out. But yeah, for now, the Phantom Menace. We like it. We recommend it. Could be in a dick. Yeah. And now, now, goddamn it, Jonathan. Now I have to find out how I'm going to watch rewatch all of Star Wars: The Clone Wars. And fucking play through Digimon and then play Dragon Ball Fighters at the same time. You fucking curse me to this, you asshole. Thanks again to everybody for tuning in to this week's episode. Please remember to rate and review us on iTunes and to follow us on Twitter at Jonathan Lack and at Sean the Chapman. We'll see you guys next week, unless we don't. Yeah. We're never going to wake from this ending nightmare, are we?